3: Can you see the sound waves appearing?
1: Yeah. Good. I'm not peeking. I'm going to bring it down a little bit. You got waves on yours, Justin? Yeah.
3: Great. Checkity check, check, check.
1: Check, check.
3: Drop the mic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I'm going to open with a song and then I'll go into it and then intro everything. Here we go. That's so unexpected So they wrote a plot About a cop and a criminal Who go and tie the knot Then they plot To go steal a fucking child Child, 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 child We're raising Arizona Ooh, my little Coppola My Nicholas Cast to play the character Hi, McDonough Paired with Holly Hunter now I wonder how, how he got along with those fiery brothers There was discontent, it was tense, but respectful And they all seemed to be friends in the end And they look on it with pride, 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 pride We're talking Raising Arizona! We're Raising Arizona! We're Raising Arizona! We're Raising Arizona! Arizona. Which one did you get? I don't know. Daisy
2: Junior out there. He's out there somewhere. Something leads
4: to him. Son, you got a panty on your head. You drive fast.
2: We got a child now. Everything's changed. Okay then.
1: That was amazing Thanks You casually were like I got a song I'm gonna <laughs> do I didn't know you were gonna Do it live Fuck it We're doing it live Yeah you Bill O'Reilly'd me That was
2: awesome is a is a is a is a
3: Welcome, everybody, to the Cinema Possessed Podcast. My name is Jack Bishop.
0: And I'm Justin Nishim.
3: And with us, as always, is the Randall Tex Cobb of this podcast.
5: Uh, I wasn't sure where it was going to go. Corey this time. Clifford.
3: Well, you are a woman with all the powers of hell behind you. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you like to put your feet up on things and don't take them off when people ask you to. Hey, I mean, I'll take it with pride. Uh, and each week we take a close look at one film in our combined DVD and Blu-ray collections and discuss what it was about it that originally possessed us, to want to possess it. We'll debate whether or not the film still holds that power over us today. And in the end, we'll decide once and for all if it deserves to keep its place on the shelf or be released on its own recognizance. These doors are going to swing wide. <laughs> Justin, how you feeling today? <laughs>
0: <coughs> not good. Not good.
3: You don't have that typical spark, that typical enthusiasm behind your voice that that normally comes with uh, Justin Nijam on a
0: podcast. Mm. Mm. Just the
5: energy that radiates through uh, through the Zoom every week.
0: It's awful. It's awful to be here with y'all today. <laughs> I feel like shit. This is the most sick I've been uh, in like. Five years, worse than COVID for sure. I don't know what anybody's talking about with that disorder. <laughs> yeah, mostly just a sore throat. So if I'm not as chatty as usual or if I sound disgusting as fuck, that this is why.
3: I got a little throat thing going on too. So I'm there with you about
0: halfway. Yeah, but you don't sound as bad as me.
5: You guys are like having a competition, I feel like, of who's sicker. Or- <laughs> you, know but- you know what's been the saving grace? You know what's
0: been the saving grace? Hot water? Cottage cheese. Hot toddies. <gasps> mm. Ooh. A little hot water, a little lemon, a little honey, some whiskey. Hey. Mm.
3: <laughs> well, fortunately... We got a little backup today. Mm -hmm. We are joined by a very special guest. He is a dear friend and one of our all time favorite actors who we've had the great pleasure of working with countless times. Folks, you've surely seen him on TV shows like Showtime's Black Monday or HBO's Barry. And if you're at all familiar with Justin and I's work, you've definitely seen him playing the most unhinged, insane, and off the wall characters, including Nicolas Cage. Folks, we are thrilled to be joined by the hilarious and unbelievably talented Bob. Hurting. What's up everybody? I
1: feel like I got to come in. I got to come in strong. Coming at, at you. Well,
5: Bob, I don't know if you've um, listened to many of episodes, but any of our listeners will know exactly who you are cuz you're brought up on this podcast almost you every do get week. brought up a lot.
3: We'll, we'll be talking we'll be talking about like James Spader and we'll be like, "You know what? This scene James Spader's got BTE." <laughs> A big yeah. turton energy.
1: Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I Literally, thought bo- you've been I, thought, rip- I thought maybe it was Bob Turton energy, but by the that's, yeah.
0: yeah. that's amazing. I'm surprised you didn't introduce him as the the Dick from Dennis Quaid's. That's true. In uh, the
3: Dennis the Quaid meltdown video, was the Bob, dick? was, dopey, was the 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 dopey the Dick.
0: Dopey Story. the Dick. Dopey the Dick. I feel like you guys have made me
1: into like uh, the guy from S- The Simpsons, right? Who's just like, you might remember <laughs> me as a giant penis from <laughs> the Dennis Quaid on set Freakout.
2: Yeah, you I mean, mo-
3: you made public appearances as Dopey the Dick. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I did. One... A teenager's birthday and then I was no longer allowed to
0: they kind of
1: shut the whole business down so I guess that was not
2: okay. Wow. I don't know.
0: that was the start um, for you was Dopey the, Jack and I giving you the opportunity of Dopey the Dick and then it kind of uh, snowballed <laughs> from there for you that's how you got your management and your agents and all that
1: everybody talks about how they got their SAG card and what their first break was. And for me, it was a giant penis costume with uh, anatomical hairs working with, working with DQ, my, like one of my childhood heroes, Mm -hmm. you know, I was, I was in awe of, of being in his presence. I mean, inner space, we're Mm -hmm. talking any given Sunday. Frequency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jaws three D you know what? He was very nice. Yeah, he was great. Was very nice. That was so fun. Uh, I was saying, you know, COVID and the strike. I don't even know if I'm an actor anymore. It's the it's this weird, oh. weird thing where uh, I feel a lot you. of people feel that way. Yeah, it's just funny to me though that like I, I'm so glad the strike's over, or tentatively. But I was saying right beforehand, it's funny because as an actor. I'm like, yay! The strike's over, and I just go back to like staring at my phone uh-huh. and <laughs> refreshing about how your much email. I'm not yeah, exactly. The dread creeps like, in like I mean, a dark like the cloud. The big
5: auditions coming in, right? right? It's coming. It's
1: not in. like a, a dolly grip who's like, "Yep, great, back to making money." Yeah, <laughs> it's like I was like, "Well, this, you know, the strike was fun because I got to see people." But
3: anyway, <laughs> well, there's there's a number of reasons why we asked Bob to be on this particular podcast today. One of them is that Bob is just a general movie fanatic like us. And so we love talking movies with him. We've watched many movies with Bob in the past. But another uh, reason is that the three of us share a connection to Nicolas Cage. Our first big Los Angeles uh, work was a web series that Justin and I did called Jack and Justin in Hollywood, in which Bob here played Nicolas Cage who in the show was our landlord. <laughs> we loved it. And it was, a, it was a way in which the three of us really bonded as creators, but also over a shared love of Nicolas Cage. And so I think this is our first Nicolas Cage movie on the podcast. So we thought we got to oh, get yeah. Bob to come on and talk about it. And <laughs> the, an, another thing, too, is that Bob is soon to be father. So I'm sure this movie resonates in a much different way than it ever has. Oh, wait, can we well, say that, Bob, or no? Yeah, 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 you could
2: say that. Oh, you know, okay. it's
1: public for sure. It's on the gram. I, what I was going to say is that not only... It, I watched this movie again yesterday, and it resonated in a whole different way that I didn't even remember. Because the other times I've seen it, I'm like, yeah, they're trying to have a kid. It's the whole thing, but whatever. But I didn't have a direct connection to it. But mm. man, we... I thought about this movie because we actually it took us a while to you know have a kid. It wasn't easy for us, and we struggled for a while. And and you know, thank thankfully science helped us out. But it's uh it's funny because I was thinking about this movie, and I was like, we could just you know steal a kid, <laughs> just, you know, take <laughs> it's some an child if they have more than they can handle. And then uh it's it, there's so much in there that was just like we were laughing yeah. last night cuz our kid could literally I mean I might have to leave the podcast if she goes into labor this afternoon. It's that close. We're like oh, that,
3: that would, would be the yeah. coolest Amazing. thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. would have to just take the microphone and your take, computer with live. you <laughs> right. so that stay live the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we keep talking about the movie. Yeah, exactly. It's calming You're like, her. You're doing great. Lisa's honey. like
5: I'm <laughs> actually divorcing you now. We're
3: done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well before we go too much further, Justin, let the people know what movie we were talking about today.
0: Today <laughs> Today we're talking 1987's Raising Arizona.
4: Down to the right! The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. You're a flower you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay then. <laughs> My lawless years were behind me Our child rearing years lay ahead But <laughs> Biology conspired to keep his childless
2: You go right back up there and get me a toddler I need a baby high, they got more than they
4: can handle At the time, Ed's little plan Seemed like the solution to all our problems What's his name? Ed Junior Hi Junior So far we've just been using Junior We call him Junior <laughs> I want Nathan Junior back He's out there somewhere Hold on Nathan we're going to go pick up daddy. I've been taking these huggies and uh, whatever cash you got. We got a child now. Everything's changed. Yeah! Where's Junior? <laughs> I'm absolutely going to get him back. Just ain't no question about that. Give me that baby, you warthog from hell. Let's go get an Junior. Raising Arizona, a comedy beyond belief. Well... It ain't
3: Ozzy and Harriet. Pretty zany stuff. I love old trailers where they're like raising Arizona, (laughs)
2: like the new film
3: (laughs) with Nicolas Cage. And if we didn't know it was a comedy, they made sure the tagline was a comedy beyond (laughs) belief. And playing the
5: like zany (laughs) Looney Tune (laughs) music (laughs) throughout it.
3: Yeah, it's. I think that's an interesting conversation too because this is notably the Coen brothers' second film. First film was Blood Simple, which is a very dark, serious, has comedy, but very, very dark comedy. But it's a, it's a noir thriller. That's what they broke on the scene with. That's what they became known for. It's a really bold statement for them to decide for their second film not to stay within that genre or anywhere close within that genre. They're like, we want to do something Completely different than the first film we made,
1: it's interesting they they managed to to do one for them and uh, another one for them just in a yeah. different way yeah
5: <laughs> for sure.
3: People who come out with their first films, typically their second movie is not too far from
5: but I feel like the genre the that thing that happens now, yeah, back then, not because the the two movies that we just did Robert like Reiner. Rob Reiner, every movie that he did was a different genre,
3: true. That's true. He did also have, you know, he wasn't a complete unknown. He didn't come sure. out like the Blood Simple was their absolute calling card. It was like what they were.
5: Right. But I feel Rob like was now people, and, directors stay kind of in one lane. Yeah.
1: I feel like people get such like credit when they try uh-huh. to step out of their lane. Like whenever Steven Soderbergh does something weird, everyone's like, oh, he's yeah. so weird and unique and interesting. <laughs> but I feel like he's just like, I don't, I'm i just like, I'm in. I'm trying to figure this out you know right I'm and he's another one myself. who did
3: who did a very different his second film was kafka after uh sex lies a videotape, lies of videotape yeah. and it was a totally black and white like totally different style and i think if you do that early on you um you don't get pigeonholed i think it works in your favor if you can like successfully come out with that sophomore effort that is different then people will just sort of say like give us whatever you're going to give us they don't have an expectation of genre well, I, I don't so- think people ever really did with the Coens.
0: Some people listen to the reps and I feel like some people don't like when you, when you make a hit now, you sign like a three picture deal with a studio. And Mm -hmm, I have a feeling that the details, I can't talk. It's too emotional. (laughs) This is really, really emotional.
5: (laughs) (laughs) The three
1: picture deal. If you know, if you die during the recording, it'll be, it'll, you know, we'll,
0: people will talk about this forever. So yeah, just just so you know, it's true. So don't say
3: anything stupid.
0: (laughs) I feel like when you, when you sign a three-picture deal with a studio, there's probably some terms that limit uh, how far outside of your lane you can go. I don't, yeah. I don't think that everybody can just be like, oh, three-picture deal, do whatever you want. Yeah. For
3: sure. Yeah, I, have the, I got this. I went and picked up this book from the library called The Coen Brothers Interviews. Good book. And they talk about that. They, have, they, they made Blood Simple with this really small production company called Circle Films. They were able to get it fairly well distributed. And they had the choice, basically, like, do we try to go to a studio and make our next couple of movies, or should we just stick with this Circle Films company because they're willing to give us a four-picture deal, and they're small enough that they aren't going to require anything. And they were like, let's just take the gamble and be able to have total creative freedom and do whatever we want with those next four pictures, rather than try to make a deal with one of the big studios, who would inevitably try to tell them what kind of movies to make. And so then by the time they were making their first movie for an actual big studio, the studios tried to... Uh, say, like, oh, you know, you're not going to be able to get final cut on this. We're going to need all these approvals. And they were like, oh, well, then we won't. We're not going to work with you because it's too late. Like, we're not going back. Like, you can't take that away from us. That's just our style now. And they've had final cut on all their movies ever since just because they wow. set their foot down right at the beginning. Incredible. What is everybody's relationship to Raising Arizona? Did you see this at an early age? Oh, man. I have a crazy story about seeing this. I was
1: talking to my partner, Lisa, about this yesterday. I was, um, I was probably I must have been like seven years old. I think when I first saw it, I was Mm -hmm. with my brother at some guy's house that he went to school with and they were having like they were all hanging out. And for some reason, I was there. I don't remember the circumstances, but they uh, they put on Raising Arizona. And I was like, man, this is a weird movie. It's very strange. But there was also there was a kid in this family that I think might have had really bad autism or something like that. And he was literally in a room next to us screaming the whole time. And I'll never forget it. I was like, this is, this is such a (laughs) weird mashup thing. I was like young and I was like, this is, I don't know really what's going on here. This is weird. It was very, it was a strange situation, but I remember really liking the movie and then kind of coming back to it again and again and again Mm -hmm. over time, because it's just, as I, you know, started studying film and getting into all that stuff, kind of understanding it more and, and how unique it was and how weird it is. And, and obviously now I feel very close to it because of all this fertility
3: stuff. It's just, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's interesting. Justin, how about you? Do you remember when you first saw this film?
0: You know, I tried to think, but I can't, I can't put my finger on it. I remember seeing the VHS tape in rental stores. I remember my mom pointing it out and saying that she liked the movie, but I, I don't think we ever brought it home and watched it. And I don't think I ever saw it on TV. So, I probably didn't watch it until I was a film student and was more aware of the Cohen Brothers going through the Cohen Brother catalog and
5: right came across that one. I don't really remember the first time though I remember when we watched all of the Cohen Brother movies, which mm-hmm. I feel like was maybe around the time that No Country for Whole Men came out mm. Probably, like, that makes maybe sense, yeah. that was. That
3: would have been when I would, because that was the year after we started dating. So that's probably. When I know. I so I'm
5: kind of, and I remember seeing that like in the theaters, and then like us watching all through. of them. Yeah, it was interesting watching this time around because, like, we're trying, we're like trying to have a baby mm-hmm. too, and I was like, oh my god, I feel like Oleander. Oh. I just want to go steal a baby. Oh yeah.
3: <laughs> like, <laughs> I've seen this movie hundreds of times. Never cried. I cried all through. I know, I know. I did I was crying. Every time Holly Hunter cried, I cried. I was so connected to her emotion in every part of the movie. Yeah. From beginning to end, like when her fiance leaves her and she's crying at the camera, (laughs) the scene was so sweet to me, how he like gets upset and he's like, you tell him. I was like holding back tears. And by the end of the movie, when they're like being told, keep trying, Uh I was just like bawling. And I've never cried watching this movie before. I think it's age has has made this movie um, hit differently. It was actually in the batch of the first DVDs I ever owned. Uh, I got a DVD player in 1999 and my parents got it for me with five DVDs. It was Raising Arizona, The Wedding Singer, The Matrix, The Edge with Anthony Hopkins and, and Alec Baldwin. Oh, great film. And Gentleman's Agreement with Gregory Peck. Never seen Gentleman's Agreement. I'd never seen Raising Arizona. And my parents... Kind of like you, Justin, they were like, Raising Arizona is a great movie. You should you should just own it. Uh, And I remember putting it in and watching it, totally being blown away by it, thinking it was just like the funnest movie. I remember coming downstairs after watching it and being like, that movie you got me is so great. I'm like obsessed with it. Yeah. And ever since it's been one of my all time favorite movies, it's one of those movies that I think was was critiqued in, in its day for maybe being kind of gimmicky uh having maybe too much camera movement too much style too much energy for me it doesn't suffer from that stuff at all like I, I don't i find that every time i watch the movie the movie gets better to me and it opens up more and it doesn't feel you know, sometimes you go back and you watch highly stylized movies and you do kind of start to feel the as It kind of wears off a little bit as you see them multiple times. You start to say, oh, yeah, this is kind of feeling gimmicky now. I don't feel that way really at all about this movie. I'm still pretty impressed. I
1: 100% agree. And it's. It is, I've similarly had a very a different experience with it this viewing that i had in the past you know the scene where holly hunter first gets the baby and she's just like i love him so much. <laughs> I was like oh man that's hilarious <laughs> i completely get that i wonder if if the coen brothers if what i i didn't I mean, there's so many things i didn't remember that francis mcdormand was in the movie because it's yeah been, i didn't I, either I the movie for like tw- 20 years yeah
5: i completely forgot that
1: and um i just wonder did did one of them or both of them had they just had a kid or was that part of the equation because there's so much in there that is so specific about that uh-huh. time yeah. as i'm finding because i'm literally in it right now and i was like oh god they're talking about conversations i literally had today
3: they actually didn't they they hadn't they were um 28 and 30 I think were their ages I'm when they when they did this. In the industry. <laughs> I'm stop doing this. They had not had babies. They said the idea was not even born out of any sort of yearning to have kids or even a deep interest in exploring that necessarily. They thought of the characters first. They thought the characters were fun and interesting and they kind of liked the world. And the baby stuff kind of happened secondary. Mm -hmm. And they said that was kind of born out of, one, trying to do something the opposite of what they had done before. So they knew they wanted it to be a comedy. And at this time, there was like a baby boom in Hollywood. You had stuff like Mr. Mom and Three Men and a Baby. Look who's talking. She's having a baby. There was a movie called Baby Boom with Diane Keaton. Baby's Day Out, because... That's in the
5: 90s. Well, that movie stole so much stuff from Raising Arizona. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> I loved that movie as a kid. And I was like, oh, my God, these are scenes straight from Baby Stay Out. Yeah. They said that they
3: were just sort of shamelessly jumping on uh, what they saw as a trend of popular movies. And they were like, we felt like we could do something different, but also benefit from the trend. It's like put a baby's face in your comedy and you might have a hit on your hands. Yeah. Now, the Coen brothers are known for sort of being facetious and ironic in their interviews. So there's maybe, maybe they're withholding a little bit of the truth of why they wrote this and they're kind of being a little bit more like, "Yeah, you know, we just saw it as an easy way to get uh, funding. That's uh, um, so interesting. It's just a testament to how good they are as writers that they were able to still tap into the layers of paternal anxiety, yeah. particularly in the character, Nicholas Cage's character.
1: 100%. It's, it's so, and God, he does such a great job of portraying that, that, you so know. So good. I love that, like, his life of crime is just – that's the metaphor for, uh, you know, having responsibility and not being able to do whatever you want anymore, which yeah. is part of every – I think everybody who's transitioning into parenthood mm-hmm. feels that way. It's just so funny that that's the thing, and hes he's got to, like – when he goes and he robs the store to get the Huggies, I was kind of like – is this like him going out and, you know, trying to sleep with some woman or something like yeah. that? Uh-huh. This is his yeah. version of like going to Vegas on a bender or whatever. Yeah. Well, you like, sort of still see got it. it.
3: You see it because he gets visited by his 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 prison mates who refer to what they do as their career. You know, it's right. like they, right. they have lines where it's like sometimes career has got to come before family high. And so it's like to me, they represent the idea of like, I'm not going to be able to like pursue my ambitions, my career with this right. kid. Whereas like the Francis McDormand and her husband with like all those kids, they sort of represent the the dread of what is family life going to become right. five years from now, you know? And then you have like the biker, which I think just is just as a representation of like the ultimate fear, you know, the death oh my fear, God. like the kill yeah, of your that, family.
1: <laughs> yeah, that. and it's funny because when, when, when you first see the biker, I, I never really thought about this before ever because I was like, whatever, it's like a thing. But now I'm like, wow, I'm this I'm having all these nightmares now because, you know, the world is going to shit as it always is. But it seems like it's really going to shit now. And we're about to have a kid like any moment (laughs) now. And I'm just like, I have these nightmares of like, you know, flaming hellfire. And just this this whole new level of anxiety and fear. So it was. Yeah. I was laughing so hard at that first time that we meet him in that crazy camera movement. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, this is like I had this dream last night." Mm-hmm. It's so funny. It's just. Oh, it's such a great film. Um,
3: yeah, and speaking on the style too. Last week we talked about when Harry met Sally. I think we mentioned him a little bit, but the cinematographer for that was Barry Sonnenfeld, who was the Coen Brothers DP for this movie and for Blood Simple. He would eventually become a director. He would do The Adams Family, Men in Black. But he started his career as a DP for the Coen brothers. He's definitely like the third brother in this time period. Like it was cool. super collaborative in terms of figuring out the visual style of this movie. And according to some of the actors, he would even, after takes, be like, that, it, that wasn't good for me. And they would be like, <laughs> oh, do you want me to move to the left a little bit? He's like, no, I just didn't think the scene worked. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's funny I'm curious how like I was thinking about this last night when I was watching it there's so many crazy almost Sam Raimi-esque yeah. camera movements mm-hmm. you know and, I, and I'm kind of watching thinking like this seems like this shot is on 35 millimeter I, I would assume it was 35 how, yeah how mm-hmm. did they move that camera it, it just I mean it, like this
3: back in the 80s that thing must have weighed like 150
1: pounds right it's, yeah
3: and and on a low budget film shoot too this was a six million dollar budget Well, do you know that the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi are buds that they, that they kind of started together as well? I did not know that. That totally makes sense. Joel Cohen was the assistant editor on Evil Dead. So yeah, the <laughs> the techniques that Sam Raimi was creating and deploying in his films, they were kind of utilizing it too because that was all kind of brand new style in 1987. Yeah. Another 1987 movie that came out was Evil Dead 2. Quentin Tarantino's talked about it before of like going to see both of those movies and, and coming out with his friends being like, this is the future of cinema. Is <laughs> Evil Dead 2 and Raising Arizona. It's so funny because I feel like Performance-wise,
1: too, Bruce Campbell in Evil Dead 2, especially, and Nicolas Cage in pretty For much everything, sure. they're yeah. definitely <laughs> cut from the same cloth, Like, yeah. um, which I i tend to think it's the same cloth I was cut from. I'm just I, I, 100% you know, I'm a think it was. <laughs> um, yeah, both of them make, they're both so great at making these choices that it's like, man, I n- never would have thought to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Benicio del Toro is another actor that does that in a, mm-hmm. in a more subtle way, but it's just like these choices that are so out of
3: left field. But- we've talked about before different actors. Some we've talked about hair actors and posture actors. Like there's some actors like Sam Jackson, Al Pacino is the same way where they start with like a, a look, a hairstyle, or or a facial hair, and that's what helps them get into character. But then there's like the Benicio del Toros and the Joaquin Phoenixes who start with like a posture. You know, mm-hmm. like they, they find the shape of the character mm-hmm. yeah. in their body. Do you subscribe to any methods like that when you approach?
1: I don't know. I, maybe I'm a lazy actor I, or, or just not good at this job. But I, I don't I don't really think in terms of those things. I, I, I didn't really come from that kind of school of
2: mm-hmm.
1: I, I guess what I found is I had success with my kind of like an, I'm like an energy actor. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And what I what I try to do is kind of come in with a rocket fuel and an open mind and then see what happens, which is mm-hmm. really fun for me because a lot of the work that I try to do on stage and with you guys, obviously, and on screen and stuff, is to kind of become a vessel to surprise myself and surprise you guys or the director with with some strange choice, something that just kind of comes out that surprises yeah. me, that, that isn't planned. And, and I see – I, th- I feel like Nicolas Cage does that a lot. Uh, you know, some people might say to a fault, but it's one of the things I will watch him in literally anything because I know it's going to be there's going to be something interesting that's going to crop up. And yeah, I'm like, mm-hmm. man, that is like
3: he has such an interesting career. And I think it's proving to be a really fruitful career, too, because obviously he had big success right off the bat. Yeah became known as like an an art film actor was able to quickly win an Oscar for leaving Las Vegas and then he was able to transition into becoming like a true blue action star. Yeah, it's it's so weird. <laughs> yeah. That's a crazy transition when you when you compare it to the roles that he kind of started with. And then he had his whole, you know, Nicolas Cage loses his shit era where he became a meme and it like bucified him in a little a Gary Busey style where it yeah. was like, is it too much? Is it too crazy? Are people making him do this stuff now? But he's totally tail. He's he's like come back around. He makes a lot of movies. He'll make like five movies a year. But like two of those five will be pretty good. And every I now and then one of them yeah. will be really good.
5: I think that's why like we're probably all coming back around on him is because he has stayed working, and yeah. like he does, like he loves it. And yeah, like it seems like he's just doing it because he loves it, and it's like. Maybe we as, like, pretentious people or whatever are, like, judging it. But he's not judging any of his work. He's just like, oh, I wanted to do this project because it seemed fun. Mm -hmm. And, like, you were even talking about, like, hearing him in an interview recently. It's like when he talks about his work, he's not, like, embarrassed or ashamed of the other things. Which he shouldn't be. Like, I wouldn't be (laughs) if I was working as much as Nicolas Cage. It's like he stayed working, stayed making a shit ton of money, Mm -hmm. and stayed relevant. Like... Yeah, and making cool stuff still along the way. He
3: has a new movie coming out called Dream Scenario. Have you seen the trailer for that? I've heard.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It looks really interesting. It's people. everybody starts dreaming of Nicolas Cage, right? Yeah. He's Is just like a idea, normal yeah. guy
3: that everybody starts dreaming about. And he kind of becomes a celebrity in the process. And I got to see a, a sneak screening of it. I thought the movie was really good, and I think he is incredible in it. But then he surprised, did a talk back afterwards. Like nobody knew he was going to be there, and then he popped up and did a, did a and whole. Just
5: for the audience and Bob, what was he wearing?
3: Oh, his classic f- full top to bottom leather <laughs> leather boots, leather pants, leather jacket, leather shirt, sunglasses <laughs> stayed on the whole time. Incredible. It was pretty awesome. But he said that part of the thing that connected him to that script of this character that overnight becomes a, a sensation. Over something he can't control, really connected with him because he was like, "That's what happened to me when that Nicholas Cage loses his shit video came out." It was a compilation of all of these moments taken out of context, right? That, when put together, created this version of me that he was like, "I didn't even know existed," and all of a sudden, that's the thing I'm like the most known for. But he was like, "I didn't make that," you know, like it wasn't like a part that I went out and made and then promoted. It was just this video that I woke up to one day, and now all of a sudden my image is different. And he had to kind of find the balance between rejecting that image and accepting that image.
1: Well, I think he's definitely one of these guys who, you said it at the beginning, he, he started his career making these kind of art, artistic choices you know these yeah. these interesting unique performances and and then he kind of became this action star but that always and I remember when I was I was like right in the pocket for that time where every big movie was a Nicolas Cage movie mm-hmm. and you know he had every movie has a weird moment or a weird line that everyone was like Nicolas Cage is so crazy but him being <laughs> an action star almost felt like you know when Pee Wee's Playhouse became a kid's show yeah I was just like this isn't really what this like we've kind of tried to make this thing and and I feel like Nicolas Cage was like I'm still gonna do my thing so like you can put me in your big movie Michael Bay (laughs) but like I'm gonna make it weird (laughs) this is the thing that I like about him so much is that he 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 just is not afraid to try something Mm -hmm. that is so out of left field yeah that Sometimes doesn't work, and I'm sure there's a lot of times that, he's, that that they don't work, but he's at least willing to try, whereas I feel like so many actors that get into the machine start to be like, well, I don't want to upset my job security mm-hmm. here, so I'm only going to take this so far and, and kind of make it so interesting and so weird, and... um and he's so far in the other direction that people people for a time, at least, weren't even like, oh, wow, he's such an amazing actor. They're like, oh, he's just crazy. Whereas yeah. Gary Oldman can do something weird and everyone's like, he's so brilliant. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> like Nicolas Cage, the reason I love watching him so much and everything is just he I, I, I just don't know. I love like watching how he's figuring it out in the moment, the choices that he's making. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really admirable. I just think he's awesome.
3: Coen Brothers, on the other hand, didn't quite love working with him and he didn't quite love working with them apparently oh. either oh interesting yeah they they weren't originally thinking of him for this role but at this point in time he had done Valley Girl he'd done Birdie and Peggy Sue got married they kind of felt he was too urban you know they didn't think he was this sort of southern uh, bumpkin character but he was obsessed with the script He was obsessed with Blood Simple. He really sought them out and fought for it. He worked with a dialect coach, did an audition and impressed them. And they're like, okay, this guy can do it. But then he would come to set with all these ideas. He would want to improvise. He had a lot of ideas about the character. And the way the Coens work is they meticulously plan everything in advance. They Hmm. storyboard everything. They come in, and especially at this time too, knowing that they were working with such a small budget in a short amount of time, yeah, they were like, we had to be as prepared as possible to get all of this in the can. And we couldn't really risk messing around and trying stuff. But that's kind of Cage's style, particularly back then. So for instance, he like had ideas like he wanted to always be checking his watch because he was like, I'm a criminal and I wanted to feel like I always think the cops are around the corner or that the clock is ticking. So I have this idea that like I should be looking at my watch all the time. And they're like, no, If you're looking at your watch the whole time, then the audience is eventually going to start looking at their watch because you're going to be reminding them about time. (laughs) And so um, he has a quote in this book where he says, Joel and Ethan have a very strong vision, and I've learned how difficult it is for them to accept another artist's vision. They have an autocratic nature. With relatively new directors, that's when you find that insecurity. The more movies they make, the more they'll lighten up. The important thing is not to discourage an actor's creative flow.
1: He definitely seems like a creative flow kind of actor guy, Mm -hmm. and I can see that really driving some people crazy, especially with the logistics of making a film, a low-budget film. Mm -hmm.
3: From what it seems like, because they wouldn't let him... Do a lot of stuff within the scenes. He yeah. took a lot of ownership over like the look of the character. So the hair was his idea. The 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 Hawaiian shirts,
5: all the things that made the character iconic. <laughs> yeah, the, all the visual yeah. things
3: that like. So he he's absolutely brought plenty to the role, even if they were sort of like holding him down a little bit. But you know, I can't look at the end product and say they they made a mistake because it's kind of a fine line to 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 toe a little bit. These are characters that steal a baby. And we do need to like them. They were probably pretty aware of the fact that, like, if we do the wrong thing, audiences aren't going to like our main characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so I can sort of understand why they were precious about it on top of all the sort of budgetary and time standpoint.
1: Well, this movie especially feels very, not, I don't want to say regimented, but it's almost like even the sets look there, they look like theater sets almost. Yeah. It's all very these vignettes these moments and there's so many it's funny watching it yesterday i haven't seen it maybe in like 15 or 20 years but there's so many lines that i remembered and started reciting and lisa mm-hmm. was like do you did you you know that like why are we watching this, Have you seen <laughs> this? i was like well it's been like 20 years but i remember like turn of right yeah you know we ate sand like all these lines throughout <laughs> that i was sand? like like reciting the movie it's so stylized that it feels like it kind of has to you know, I can, it, it seems like they really exhaustively prepared for it.
0: Yeah. I just want to remind everybody that I'm still here. <laughs> I'm like the audience today, you know? Yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm an observer. I'm a listener. I'm enjoying Well, it. Justin, what, what was this
3: rewatch like for you? Oh, now you're asking me? <laughs> um, Welcome I, to my I world, Justin.
0: <laughs> I know. I know. Corey, just, we'll talk later. <laughs> um, I don't know why, but I came in with expectations that I was not going to like it on this viewing. Really? I was re- really ready to say it was underrated and not that funny. And I think maybe just because of like the cartoony nature of it. I find myself very much unattracted these days to movies that do have like a Roadrunner, yeah. Woody Woodpecker vibe to them.
3: Chuck Jones.
0: Yeah, I find it kind of dated. I think I used to like that more. So I was like, oh, I, I definitely won't. Uh, enjoy this movie and mm. couldn't be further from the truth i liked it more than i've ever Fuck liked yeah. it before Fuck yeah! <laughs> just being honest i thought it was hilarious i thought it's like people ask me uh the the question of what's uh what's a funny movie we could watch tonight do you have any comedy recommendations and i never know how to answer that question because i think comedies fucking suck they're the worst genre <laughs> that cinema has <laughs> Especially these days, um, just because they're hit or miss, hit or miss, or they're one note. They're like frat dick joke movies, you know. Just uh-huh. like
1: <laughs> I love those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I
0: mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm smart. Like you know, high school, you, you maybe you would say, uh, "Uh, what's that stupid fucking one with Will Ferrell and, and old school, old school, old school, old
1: school. Old school's great." <laughs> have you have you watched it recently? I watched it on an airplane recently. I thought it was fantastic. It mm. was great. You got Vince Vaughn. You got Willie <laughs> B- Farrell. Big Will. Yeah. So uh, Luke Wilson. It's a Luke Wilson joint, right?
0: <laughs> I'm not as moved by- You're more by, of an Owen guy. ...by that stuff anymore. Um, so I don't know. I'm always like trying to reflect on like, what does a, com- a perfect comedy look like to me? What's my sense of humor? And I don't know. I think this, this one has to be on the list.
3: Yeah, I think the Coen brothers nail my sense of humor and maybe part of my sense of humor was just built from the Coen brothers, but I think they are some of the funniest filmmakers around that there's ever been, even in their darker ones. I think No Country for Old Men has barrel laughs in it. Yeah. (laughs) Fargo, for sure. Fargo's hysterical. They're very dry. I like dry humor. I think you like dry humor, too. The drier, the better. And I think this movie does a really interesting thing where it's not a dry movie, even though it takes place in the desert. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it reading some reviews that were included in this book a lot of people what's um, the book did you mention the, the cohen brothers interviews
2: mm. that's
0: what it's called i didn't know that was the title of the book I just thought <laughs> that's literally <laughs> what the title is
3: and it has a really like if i was the cohen brothers i'd be mad because look at this picture <laughs> of people, oh my god <laughs> they, would be like, pissed. they took the derpiest picture of them and put it on the cover <laughs> but the reviews so many of them are like these guys clearly hate their characters because they're just making fun of them the whole time and they're looking down on them, which I think is a thing that the Coen brothers have been accused of in a lot of their movies. And I think some of their movies it qualifies. like, I think Fargo, I don't think it hurts the movie at all, but I think they do think those characters are fucking idiots, all of them. <laughs> Every character except for Marge in that movie, they think is a fucking idiot. I don't get the vibe of that with this movie. I don't think they ri- are writing these characters thinking, look how dumb these people are. I think they have a real affection for
1: them. I would agree with that 100%. I mean, they're, they're, you know, Nicolas Cage is such a clown in it, but it's 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 only funny because I feel like he reflects all of- such a heart. Yeah, and, we, and I I don't know. I, I feel like I'm watching Nicolas Cage in Raising Arizona laughing because I'm really connecting with so many of the things that he's going through and dealing with. Yeah. In different ways, or, you know, but but still, it just, he's funny. It's just like life, man. You know? Yeah. <laughs> were you bawling at the end of the movie, Bob? Uh, yeah, I was bawling at the beginning of the movie. But um, <laughs> I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just raw right now, man. I'm just raw. I'm like, Jack, we're in a raw state. <laughs> you are too, Justin. State, yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more about raising Arizona. Welcome back to Cinema Possessed, and we are talking 1987's Raising Arizona. Well, this movie opens with a whirlwind of an opening sequence. Mm -hmm. We did a top five opening scenes on our Patreon. This was definitely on my list, and watching it again, I think this is one of the greatest openings of any
2: movie
4: ever. My name is H.I. McDonough. Call me hi. The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. Don't forget his profile, Ed. Turn to the right. A day I'll never forget. Turn to the right. What kind of name is Ed for a pretty thing like you? Short boy, Edwina, turn to the right. You're a flower, you are. Just a little desert flower.
3: It moves like a storm. And what's interesting to me is that the whole first 11 minutes of this movie is a montage, basically. It's it's yeah. like the music barely ever stops. It's guided by voiceover. And it's very cyclical. You're seeing him get arrested and released and arrested and released. And as that's happening, you're seeing the journey of the love story between him and Holly Hunter. It's beautiful. Yeah, The Coens did write this role for Holly Hunter because she was Francis McDormand's roommate.
1: That's amazing.
3: If those walls could talk. (laughs) Do you know who their third roommate was? Kathy Bates. Wow. Are you kidding me? Yeah. (laughs) What's interesting, though, is that the Coens have never worked with Kathy Bates. So there's like a rumor that they didn't like her.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Really? That's interesting. I love those stories when you're like, they were, you know, the the roommates like Holly Hunter, Kathy Bates and And Frances McDormand. McDormand. Mm Like, what the fuck? All of which are now Oscar
3: winners. Wow, I believe Kathy Bates was the first. I think she won for Misery before misery, either right? of them. Yeah. yeah, they loved Holly Hunter. They actually wanted Holly Hunter to play the Francis McDormand part in Blood Simple, but she turned it down. And so yeah, they wrote they wrote that role specifically for her, and she's incredible in the movie. Oh, I mean, like, God. yeah, I've never felt it more than this. I was like, so uh connected with her this whole
1: yeah. time. yeah she i was on a flight once with that she was on from from la to new york and i was like i was so excited i was like man
5: holly hunter's on her <laughs> flight this is awesome
1: she's so she's a very tiny person yeah she she, seems i thought a, that yeah. while
5: watching this like yeah. she's so
1: little but man what a powerhouse like oh, it's she's just amazing so it's amazing right mm-hmm. yeah she's incredible he
3: gets released they get married I love the marriage sequence. Like, looking at the details of this whole montage is fun because when when it cuts to the wide shot of all the people there, you can see that everybody on Ed's side is a police officer (laughs) and everybody on High's side is wearing a Hawaiian shirt. (laughs) He gets a job at a factory. M. Emmett Walsh is his co worker. M. Emmett Walsh was in their first film, Blood Simple, returning here to make a hilarious cameo
1: paramedical work and affiliation with the state highway system. Not actually practicing,
4: you understand? And me and Bill are patrolling down nine miles. Bill Roberts? No, not that mother scratcher. Bill Parker. Anyway, we're approaching the wreck and there's this spherical object resting in the highway. And it's not a piece of the car. So here's Bill walking down nine miles. That's Bill Parker, you understand? And he's got his sandwich in one hand, and the fucking head in the
1: other. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it was funny. I was looking at uh, IMDb right now and I saw M. Emmett Walsh's character is Machine Shop Earbender, <laughs> which I love. He's like, I don't need a name. Like, <laughs> it's great.
3: I'm sure it was just a favorite. It was like, hey, you did such a great job in our first movie. You want to come, like, do a little part?
1: Those are the best roles, I think. It's like, mm-hmm. no pressure. I just mm-hmm. want to get to that point in my career where I can, be like, come, come in and, and, and be, be funny. One scene. Yeah. yeah, just like you know, and then get go home and just yeah, it's, that's so fun. I love that.
3: Do you remember in um the pandemic when you used to have to go get COVID tests at an actual like walk-in clinic? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, one time during the pandemic, I go into the Cedar Sinai walk-in clinic in Culver City, and there's like a nurse with a clipboard who who greets you, and as she greets me, I hear this voice behind me go, "Careful with her, son. She'll make you cry." <laughs> and I turn around. And M. Emmett Walsh is sitting in the waiting room right behind me. And he's got like a mask on. And he's older, obviously, but I could completely tell it was him. And he had some lady with him who was like sitting a few chairs away from him, maybe his daughter or his assistant who was like helping him. So I kind of laugh and I take the clipboard and she's like, fill these out and bring it back up. So I sit down like a seat away from him, and I'm filling out my forms, and I'm kind of like looking at him through my peripheral, and I'm thinking, like, should I say I'm a fan? And then all of a sudden he leans over to me. And he goes, "You remind me of a ball player I used to play against in high school. I used to make him cry." <laughs> so weird. Weird. <laughs> so like, great, kind of- Emmett Walsh uh, <laughs>
1: impression, by the way.
0: What a flex! So I'm like, he's got
3: this weird obsession with making people cry. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, this is my opportunity. So I say, "I'm actually a really big fan of yours. I love Blood Simple." And he looks at me for a second and he goes, I'll let you in on a trade secret. You're talking to my deaf ear. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and then he starts signaling me to like swap seats to the other side of his body so that he could hear me. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'm gonna talk to him and Walsh now. So I stand up to switch seats, and right at that moment, the nurse comes out of the doctor's office and goes, Michael Walsh? Oh. And he goes, that's me. <laughs> and he stands up and his like assistant stands up with him. So now the three of us are standing and I'm like, I was just saying I'm a huge fan of yours. I love Blood Simple. And he goes, ha 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 ha. <laughs> And and walked away. He didn't hear one word <laughs> yeah, you said. To this day, I don't know if he ever actually heard. No, and that so
5: sucks because I bet he would have told you good stories.
3: Yeah, I was like, oh, this is gonna be cool. Me to like have a conversation with him. But that was my. I idea. love. I really
1: love those those like deep track celebrity um, mm-hmm. moments in Los Angeles. Like you know, yeah. the, the, I get excited about the things that nobody cares about. If I saw Brad Pitt, yeah. I'd be like, oh, that's cool. But like if I <laughs> if I run into like you know, give me a Matthew Modine. You know, yeah.
2: or, um,
3: we, Justin and I had a great one the first month that we moved out here we were like we had wrangled a bunch of actors that we really didn't know to come shoot a sketch with us in Bronson Canyon which is where they shoot like they used to shoot the bat that's where the bat cave was in the yeah. 1960s Batman and um we were carpooling there was two cars oh, we God. were leading the way the actors who we had hired were following us Carl Tart was one of the actors Yeah, and we got totally lost. Justin and I did not know how to get there. And so we stopped on the road and we're like, stuck our heads out the windows and we're talking to the car behind us. Like we're kind of lost. We don't know where we're going. And all of a sudden Bob Odenkirk comes riding up on a bicycle and he's in like full biker workout gear, helmet, sunglasses. And he's like, you guys lost. And we're like, yeah, we're just trying to get to Bronson Canyon. And he goes, follow me. (laughs) And he just starts riding his bike. And so, like, we're all turning like, that's fucking Bob Odenkirk. And he guided us to Bronson Canyon on his bike.
5: So cool. Oh, man. We're
1: just like, thanks, Bob. You're OK. You're probably going to cut this out of your podcast because it's not that interesting. But the whole time you were starting to tell that story, I was like, what's my most random, you know, celebrity sighting and that happened early on when I first got to L.A.? And it was fucking Bob Odenkirk. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was on his bike with his two kids. I don't know. If he has two kids, I guess. Maybe more now. Is but... he
0: always on a bike? A bi- <laughs> he must be a big he biker. He had a
1: bike helmet on. It was in Los Feliz. And he's like, he was just dealing with his kids. Just like, come on, guys. You got to wear your helmets wow, that's Bob Odenkirk.
3: Crazy. Hey, there's probably a thousand Bob Odenkirk stories out there. All on a bike. He's just all floating around on his bike. Yeah, he didn't seem like a people happy. Yeah. He's like Forrest Gump in that way.
0: Yeah. We also saw Tom Hanks on a bike. Oh, that's a Oh, good yeah.
3: One. Speaking of fucking Gump. That was that at the, what was that, the Paramount lot?
0: Yeah. Which I just feel we like walk- you don't usually see celebrities Never. at all at a studio.
3: We were walking across the street that was kind of a group of us. And then all of a sudden we hear Tom Hanks go, Get out of my way, everybody out of my way. And he was like riding through on a bike, acting like he was mad, but obviously being funny. He wanted
5: a little Tom Hanks attention. Yeah, he, part, yeah, he
3: parted the crowd. as, as little, I think he rang his little bell, too.
5: He was like, I'm going to make these people's day.
1: Wouldn't mind a Hanks meetup. I've never, never seen. Never, there's like a certain level of celebrity that I think like you, you just don't see out and about because none of them yeah. live yeah. in L.A. Because they're like, yeah. I don't I
0: have to live here anymore.
3: I've heard but, stories of Fincher. Walking around that I would think be Los cool. Feliz.
0: where's your dream? Um, you're Hollywood you're a triple A lister you have more money than you know what to do with. what's uh-huh. your dream remote home destination Big bear Burbank Burbank you said? <laughs> yeah, have you ever been up there? It's so peaceful
5: Jack said big bear
0: I'm oh. a big bear guy, big bear, really so you wouldn't even leave the state
5: <laughs> nah. Arkansas, I'd go back and fucking get a huge plot of land somewhere beautiful in Arkansas. Yeah.
1: I, I, I was
5: lying. I would probably
1: do like, uh, I just went to Norway recently and I was like, oh, I'd, I mean,
5: if we can leave the country, it, you know, I guess, right, yeah. yeah, that. Why, wouldn't,
1: why, why would you invent a rule that you couldn't leave
5: the country? I don't know. That's true. That's true. Still, still big bear for me. <laughs> Italy, Italy,
0: Italy. Yeah. What about you, Justin? I think Japan or Greece would be cool.
5: Ooh, yeah.
0: Interesting. But
3: you've never been to Japan.
0: Not yet, but I know that I'm... I can you didn't know that you would fit in there? I feel like your money would go a lot further in Greece.
5: Absolutely, it would. You know.
0: <laughs> yeah, been to Greece, love Greece. Um, but Japan has been on the list for a while. I'm not going go we to go were... to Japan and be like, oh my God, I hated it, you know? <laughs> I haven't heard anybody say that,
5: yeah. I've never heard anybody. I have a friend who just went and she was like, "This is the most magical place in the world. She was a woman and went by herself. She was like, I've never felt safer in a place ever. I've been dreaming about it
0: since I was six years old. I can't believe I still have not gone. What if Justin comes back and he's like, you know what?
1: Japan is the old school of countries.
2: (laughs) I fucking hate it. (laughs) <laughs>
1: that was a good,
0: good full circle. I like that, Bob. And I'm out. <laughs> Finally, we got we got our money's worth with you, Bob. This whole pot, I was waiting for you to just like crack a big one.
3: Funny moment when he gets his paycheck and the woman says, Government, do take a bite, don't she? <laughs> Classic Cohen Brothers, their supporting side characters are always hysterical. That's another interesting thing about this movie, I think too, is it's not—I don't think—a very accurate depiction of Arizona, because everybody's way too southern, and people yeah. in Arizona are really not that. They're they're talking more like Texas okay. in
1: yeah, this movie. You're totally you're totally right. It's funny. I was thinking about that while I was watching because I I end up I'm going to Arizona a lot these days, and I was like excited to see Raising Arizona. Yeah, you know, but I was like, I don't. This doesn't really feel and then there's one scene where there's a bunch of like highway patrol officers and they look like chp officers so like wearing a california <laughs> yeah. highway patrol and uh, yeah it's funny yeah
3: they're from minnesota i don't think they'd ever been to arizona they said that they were just looking to write a script in anywhere but minnesota they were like arizona to us felt as foreign as a foreign country and so this is definitely their interpretation of what Arizona is like. Ethan was like, it's an Arizona of the mind. I buy that. I like that. I have absolutely no issue with it. I think it's such an endearing portrait. I don't care that it's not real. But interesting, we talked on the Boys in the Hood episode about the the sort of looming effects of Reagan on that movie Uh and the characters of that movie. And you can definitely feel that in this movie, he mentions him. He says that some bitch Reagan in the office. The government do take a bite, don't she? I like that the movie dribbles in these little... Spices of politics and social commentary in there, but never makes the movie about it, you know, but like in a lot of ways, this movie is about like have and have nots, you know, like they want something that they can't afford. And because he's a criminal, they're not going to let them adopt. Meanwhile, you're sort of contrasting that with the Arizona family who are clearly wealthy and have an abundance. Uh, and so I just think that's a, it's another way that I think the script is
1: very smart. That, that rate, that one Reagan line really stood out to me. Cause I was like, man, mm-hmm. that is, it's interesting how at the time this movie was made, they talk about Reagan that way saying, you know, they're, they're clearly very blue collar characters who are, I would assume Democrats because that's at the time, the working man's party. And, and then how during, I feel like Reagan kind of flipped that whole thing. And then mm-hmm. now it's, you know, all these characters would probably be absolutely Uh more Republican, conservative Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. It's it's fascinating. Like I didn't remember that. And it's, uh, it's just so different than what's happening in the world right now.
3: I love Trey Wilson, Nathan, Arizona. So funny unpainted Arizona. If you could find a better deal anywhere else then my name ain't Nathan, Arizona, which apparently was inspired by a, a real place in Minnesota called plywood, Minnesota. That Uh, I guess is. Do you know it? No. Okay. so
1: I'm laughing because when we were watching it, it was like unpainted Arizona. And Lisa, who's from Minnesota, was like she laughed really hard. And I was like, I don't. What's the connection? I don't understand. What is that? She's like, didn't you ever go there as a kid? And I'm assuming that she (laughs) went to
3: the place in Minnesota. Plywood, plywood, Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. And I I guess if you're from Minnesota, everybody knows those commercials. It was like a guy in a flannel shirt. I think he ended up becoming a politician. I don't remember what his name was, but
1: that is amazing. She knew exactly what Yeah, she said. She used to go there all the time as a kid. And I was like, I've never (laughs) been to an unpainted furniture store. I don't even know what this is.
3: Sad thing about Trey Wilson. This was his big break. He did eight more movies over the next two years because he blew up. He was in Bull Durham. He was in uh, Married to the Mob, the Jonathan Demme movie. The Coen Brothers ended up writing him a big role in Miller's Crossing. And two days before he was set to fly out, he died suddenly of a cerebral hemorrhage. Oh, oh he's man! 40.
5: Wow. God, 40? Forty. Forty. Yeah, he was uh, only forty. Crazy. Yeah.
3: But he's—I mean—his legacy is is this movie basically? Like mm-hmm. he's very well known for it. By the time the credits hit, you've almost forgotten that. You're watching the beginning of the movie. Totally. It's almost like, oh shit, yeah, there's the credits haven't even rolled yet.
4: But we thought it was unfair that some should have so many while others should have so few. But with the benefit of hindsight, maybe it wasn't such a hot idea. But at the time, Ezra's plan seemed like the solution to all our problems and the answer to all our prayers.
2: <laughs>
3: Carter Burwell did the score to this Burwell has done pretty much all the Coen Brothers movies The music is super iconic with that banjo and the yodeling Not to take any credit from Carter Burwell But this is not like an original suite This is actually um, based off of a Pete Seeger song called Goofing Off Suite Oh, interesting And the Pete Seeger song in and of itself is kind of a hodgepodge of other traditional folk songs. Southern folk songs, some Russian folk songs. There's a little part of it where um, Beethoven comes in there with Ode to Joy. And then like the yodeling melody comes from this old-timey band called the Sons of the Pioneers. They did it like way back in the 30s with this song called Way Out There. So all of this is kind of like this remix of old traditional folk music that then Carter Burwell re-recorded, you know, brought in a banjo player and a yodeler. I did not know that. You
5: learn something new every day.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So then we get the baby stealing sequence, which I think is a hysterical.
5: This is what felt like Baby Stay Out to me. (laughs) I was cracking up.
1: I mean, I was laughing this whole movie. The production design of that baby room is crazy too. It's very cartoonish. Yeah. It's like the blue carpet and all the Mm -hmm. toys, the massive crib, just the fact that they're all in the crib together. It just, it feels like a weird nightmare to me.
5: Yeah. These babies are so fucking cute. And it's, it it
3: like goes back to what they're saying. Like they were like, you put a baby's face in these movies. He compared it to a squib. He was like, if you put a squib on somebody and, and blow it up and blood comes out, that gives you, that gives the audience an emotional reaction 100% of the time. And he's like, a baby's face will do the same thing.
1: <laughs> I was thinking about Nicolas Cage What watching the scene where he, there's this really long kind of drawn out sequence where he's sort of like juggling all the different babies. Yeah. And it's it's such a I don't remember it. Uh, It's such a strange long moment in the film where he's just kind of like going back and forth and like arranging the Mm -hmm. kids and getting back in the crib, the whole thing. And I was like, man, this is almost this is mesmerizing to watch. And I just imagine I'm so nervous around one baby. I can't imagine being Nick Cage on set with five babies, just like navigating them and picking them up and moving them around. And I was like, oh, this is a crazy, crazy, interesting actor moment <laughs> well and like you said right. too there,
3: there wasn't just five there was 15 oh because <laughs> they had a bunch of extra babies just in case and all of them had their own parents there like their own baby moms <laughs> that he had to deal with too that's so funny the Cohen brothers have some funny quotes about it they said we kept firing babies when they wouldn't behave and they didn't even know they were being fired that was what was so pathetic about it <laughs> <laughs> They said um, some of them took their first steps on the set. Ordinarily, that would be a pretty happy moment. But in this case, it got them fired. <laughs> they would have to make the walk of shame. And they said that one of the moms even put their baby's shoes on backwards to prevent them from beginning to walk. Oh my
5: God, that's like Antichrist Yeah, situation. Because of the
3: size of the babies, the, all these babies were on the cusp of walking. And so some of them actually would start walking and they would
5: get booted.
1: It is funny that, you know, like the babies are born, there's a news story about it and they get there. And unless I missed something, it's supposed to have happened pretty soon before yeah, they take the babies. Huge babies. <laughs> know, the babies are like a year old. All of them. I was laughing. I was like, That's not what a newborn baby looks like.
3: Well, and the mom is looking pretty good too.
1: Yeah, I know. She's like, it's like a toothpick. Yeah. Also like, looks like she's like 70, hundred years I- old. <laughs> oh, God. But fun, fun fact on my minimal research, uh, for this relevant podcast, uh, there were 10 arizona quints in the cast and none of them have headshots
3: on imdb so none mm. of them went on to have careers as actors
5: that's so crazy
3: i did hear one of them died oh but not technically not one of the babies you know at the end of the movie when he has the dream and he he imagines him as a as a teenage football player uh-huh yeah. that guy was murdered
5: oh my holy god holy shit
3: really in a road in a road rage <gasps> incident oh man horrible and then his friends kind of got together and started this fund where they were like looking to create an alternative, like safety weapon to a gun, and they created the taser. Wow! His, so his really his this murder
0: feels fa- so <laughs> fake to me. <laughs> it's real, absolutely it's no real. Way. No, did it you feels get like two question, sources? That would be
5: at, like a trivia bar. Did you get two I got sources two sources on sources. this one. <laughs> Got See I'm there's different guy- than
1: Justin. I just choose to believe anything that I I'm know. told. The source like, is a
3: guy great. that there's a guy there's a guy um who's making a documentary that hasn't come out yet. <laughs> <That's your laughs> Called sword. Arizona Raised where he's uh uh he's catching up with all the babies who were cast in the film. Stop. And stop. That is I'm not I'm not Wait, <laughs> is is the guy
1: who's making this documentary you? <laughs> and-
2: <laughs> that sounds
0: amazing he, 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 on the he wikipedia that. for taser it says jack cover and nasa researcher <laughs> began developing the first taser in 1969 <laughs> this By is what i love about <laughs> cover had completed the device it- <laughs> which he named taser
3: <laughs> the like widely manufactured version of it hey, look that's what the documentarian <laughs> said
2: <laughs> okay. you didn't All even right. wikipedia
3: bob, bob if you click on any I... one of those babies on imdb they'll probably bring you to arizona raised the unreleased documentary i just want
0: our audience to trust us you know that we're we're a source a one-stop shop for
3: he's
1: right No, it did. that's exactly what happened arizona raised and the poster says lights camera murder it does it says lights camera murder Yep,
3: Arizona Rays. What the heck ever happened to the Arizona Quince? See? The question that
1: and has been
5: on everybody's mind for the past 30 years. Don't
3: think I didn't try to hunt down that documentary. That's how I discovered it has not been finished yet. It's because you cannot watch when it When did anywhere. it
5: start getting made?
3: What does it say on there? 2006 something? something?
0: tells me it will never get finished, but that's just <laughs> um, a, a hunch. I'm talking about the taser. I'm talking about you saying that his friends did a GoFundMe and invented a no, table. I didn't say go.
3: I didn't say GoFundMe. This was way before GoFundMe. They did like a. They did. They they created some sort of charity or something that ended up. I don't know. Okay. Did I did I read the article very quickly one time and then move on Let's say that I'll put that in the memory bank. So he gets Nathan Junior. He grabs the Dr. Spock book. He goes, here's the instructions. (laughs) Great moment where she just immediately starts sobbing.
4: Mm -hmm. Oh, he's beautiful. Yeah, he's awful damn good. I think I got the best one. I bet they were all beautiful. All babies are beautiful. This one's awful damn good, though. Don't you cuss around him. He's fine. He is. I think it's Nathan Jr. We are doing the right thing, aren't we, Hi? I mean, they had more than they could handle. Well, now, honey, we've been over this and over this, and there's what's right, and there's what's right, and never the twain shall meet. Don't you think his mama will be upset? I mean, overly? Well, of course she'll be upset, Sugar, but she'll get over it. She's got four little babies almost as good as this one. It's like when I was riding the convenience store. <laughs> I love him so much. <laughs> I know you do, honey. I love him so much. I know you
3: do. And then uh, we get the a birth sequence of uh, John Goodman and William Forsythe escaping from prison, uh. bursting their way out of the muddy ground. Gail and Evel Snopes, they're his buddies from prison.
5: John Goodman (laughs) is just incredible. And he was fairly new
3: at the time. This was the first time he'd ever worked with the Coen brothers. They didn't know who he was, but he had a great audition. And William Forsythe, I think, is also fucking
1: great. Yeah, he's great. The way they... There's the scene where they're kind of combing their hair back and they just grab that grease... That's yeah. one of those things that I remember from the first time that I saw the movie when I was a little kid being like, what are they doing? Like, what is that? Yeah. That's so weird. Is that weird how I should do
3: my hair? Exactly. That, yeah.
1: In
5: that scene, I told, I leaned over to Jack. I was like, wow, I never realized how much the Coen brothers love Paul Because when we did A Brother Art though, yeah. it's like George Clooney's main character. Oh, the Dapper Dan. Trait. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And it
3: ties back too because the way the sheriff tracks them, you know, Brother Art Thou, is through the pomade cans. Yeah. And the way the first thing that the biker does when he comes into the story is he busts into that bathroom and he sees that pomade and he tracks them through the smell. What I love about the Coen Brothers is they are oftentimes making very similar movies, but that are completely different. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. But the stories are often kind of telling the same thing. They use a lot of the same types of characters. Like how many Coen Brothers movies involve somebody scheming to do something or somebody hiring somebody to kill somebody or kidnap somebody. They all kind of start with a scheme that goes wrong. And then they have these like visual motifs like the pomade and stuff. And even the biker character who comes right after this is a character that isn't the, the sheriff in Brother Art Thou is one of those sort of devilish, Mm -hmm. almost mystical otherworldly figures that is like this looming presence of death. That's following the characters. You could say Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men is a similar character to the biker in this. Let's talk about Randall Tex Cobb. Did you, do, did you know him from anything else other than this movie?
1: What What else has he been in? He Okay, I got to look him up. I know him from
3: Ernest Goes to Jail.
1: Oh, interesting.
5: I didn't recognize him. Plays Lyle. In that.
3: I feel like I might
1: only know him from this and I just remember him from this. Wait, was he a boxer?
3: Yeah, he was a former boxer. That's why his nose is all busted.
1: He's got such a great look in this movie. I love when he blows up the, the bunny rabbit. It's just so <laughs> yeah. funny to me.
3: High has a dream about this lone biker, the apocalypse, who also is birthed. He births from flames. It's like a wall of flames and he comes <laughs> f- flying out of it. And yeah, he's got grenades strapped to his body. He's filthy. His teeth are gross. He basically looks like the road warrior. And apparently Randall Tex Cobb was the the true nightmare of of the movie. Um, On set? He was not fun to work with. Joel said, uh, he's less an actor than a force of nature. I don't know if I'd rush headlong into employing him for a future film.
2: Ooh. And according to,
3: there's like an, an oral history of the movie that I read. And um, the editor said that, His manager, who was not an acting manager, he was like a boxing manager, was constantly uh, trying to get him, forcing them to pay more money. So, like, when he needed to come back for reshoots, he, like, made them pay, like, triple his salary. Uh, They were like, otherwise he's not going to come back.
5: Honestly, good manager, though. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get yourself a boxing manager.
3: Here's, okay, so I don't remember this,
1: but I guess he was also, he had a cameo in Ace Ventura Pet Detective.
3: Oh, yeah, he's at the beginning. Right. That Which opening is, scene where he steals the dog from him as, yeah. the, as the UPS guy.
1: So I don't know if this is intentional or coincidental, but I always associate Jim Carrey and Ace Ventura with um, Nicolas Cage in Raising Arizona. I just feel I like they're it. kind mm. of a similar ilk. And even the like the wardrobe seems like it's yeah. kind of like a nod to the other movie. I just wonder if that was an intentional thing that happened with Ace Ventura.
3: It could be. And I, I do know we talked about this on Dumb and Dumber when we did that. Jim Carrey wanted Nicolas Cage to play Harry in Dumb and Dumber because he wanted a real actor that wouldn't try to upstage him comedically, but would just be real and feed off of him naturally. That's and he so loved funny. Nicolas Cage. He, and okay. when you watch this movie, you could totally see Nicolas Cage as the role of Harry.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. He, his Jim Carrey, did did you guys ever, I think I recommended this to you, his book that he came out with a couple years ago?
3: I never read the book, no.
1: um, It's great, and it's totally insane, but Nicolas Cage <laughs> is a huge part of the book. Like, there's a lot, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but there's like, Nicolas Cage is a massive part of the book, and it's so funny the way he's portrayed, and wow. it wow. makes sense oh, that, that Jim oh, that's Carrey. that's
3: right, it's the book where he's sort of creating a fictional narrative, but it's also kind of telling a true story of Carrie's life.
1: Yeah. It's like it, I thought it was a, an autobiography or a memoir, but it it is in a lot of ways, but there's also a lot of fictionalization in there and it totally works, but there's like these nuggets of truth where you kind of get a peek into the inside of Jim Carrey's head or like, you know what he binges on Netflix or how he feels about, (laughs) Um, Renee Zellweger, stuff like that. But then there's these like totally ridiculous, insane, you know, there's even action sequences. It's great. I hope they make a movie out of it. This is memoirs
0: and misinformation.
1: Yes, yes. He just like like, really deconstructs the Hollywood elite in a way that is so delightful. It's really fun.
3: And yeah, Nicolas Cage was going to do Dumb and Dumber, but the producers didn't want to pay him. They basically held out until he eventually took another job, which ended up being leaving Las Vegas. Which won him wow. an Oscar. So wow. things worked out. And we all got Jeff Daniels out of it, you
0: know. Did you say, Bob, that Jeff Daniels narrates the audiobook?
3: Oh, that's cool. No, of Jim Carrey's book? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Ah. Oh
0: man, now I gotta listen to it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's fun.
3: And you can really feel the Sam Raimi influence on this dream sequence, especially in the shot where it's like the camera yeah. is yeah. floating above the car and then goes up the ladder and through the window. They were actually even using the same technique that Sam Raimi uses, which is the shaky cam technique, which is a camera bolted to the middle of a big two by four that two people hold on either side and they run at the same time with it. And that's how they're able to go over the car and stuff. Mm. Some of it was shot in reverse too.
1: I was wondering if they did it in reverse because the way it goes up the ladder there. Yeah, I was like, did they shoot this in reverse and speed it up? Or mm-hmm. I know it's like super film geeky, but I, I, I was just watching thinking like this would be easy now with an iPhone or a light camera on a rig, but like back right. then it just seems like that would be so difficult to do. And it
3: like goes right into her mouth too. Yeah. And this woman who plays the the Arizona's mom got the part because during the audition they had uh, all the actresses scream in this moment for when she sees that Nathan has gone and scream. And she said that she um, was sitting in the waiting room and she heard all these actresses just doing traditional horror movie screams. And so she was like, well, if I want to stand out, I got to do something different. So she went in there and she did an opera like, (laughs) and the Coen brothers were like, we love that. And so that's what got her to the part. And in this moment, when the camera zooms up to her, the Carter Burwell score has like an opera singer, like squelch in the background. So I wonder if she maybe even inspired that, uh, that little touch of the music.
1: Lynn Kitey. Lynn I don't Kide. know if I'm pronouncing that right. Lynn Kitey. No picture on IMDb. Does she do more? Uh, this is interesting. Lynn Kitey seems to be big in the UFO community because all, all, all of her credits besides "Raising Arizona are like... Um, interesting. Uh, ...about the Phoenix Lights oh. and, and, and UFO stuff. So I wonder that's if so she was...
3: That's so funny because there's that great line when the reporters are interviewing him and he says like, uh, are any of the rumors true that the, maybe Nathan was abducted by a UFO? And he goes, Don't print that, son. If his mom reads that, she's just going to lose all hope.
1: <laughs> Man, that's crazy. She must, there's got to be some story here with Lynn Kite. She must be connected to the Phoenix. Yeah. Like she made a movie about the Phoenix Lights, a documentary.
3: I feel like this movie has a little bit of an alien vibe to it because it's mentioned in that, but also Emmett Walsh, when he's describing one of his stories, he says, "There's a spherical object floating on the highway, and it wasn't a piece of the car." So it's like there's these little hints throughout the movie that like aliens are abound. <laughs> yeah,
5: <laughs> that's one of Jack's uh, crockpot theories again. Or what's it called? What's the term? A college
3: thesis paper. Yeah, that I've been <laughs> a
2: yeah. crockpot theory. Crockpot. Yeah, and
3: they would eventually play with aliens. And the man who wasn't there, I think they're into aliens. Okay. <laughs> a great sequence where Glenn and Dot come over, played by Sam McMurray and Frances McDorman.
5: She's so funny in this. It's fun because you don't ever see her in a role like this, like a
3: kind of a wild, goofy role.
5: Yeah. And like a, like, highly like girly girl, too. Mm-hmm.
3: And I love Sam McMurray. He's so fucking funny. There's a moment in the uh, oral history where he said that the Coen brothers were very against improv from everybody. And, um, during a rehearsal, he did the thing where he grabbed the handful of peanuts and threw it at one of the kids like that moment <laughs> in the movie that was off the cuff. Everybody laughed like the crew cracked up laughing. And apparently Joel walked over to him and he said, we're going to keep that, but don't do anything like that again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's hilarious. I, I got confused in this scene. So he's basically there. He says things about them having fertility issues but they've got five kids. I don't really, I got lost there. I must have missed a detail there somehow. Yeah,
3: he says there's something wrong with the semen.
1: Right. Uh-huh. Oh, I think I just figured it out. They're swingers, right? So all the kids aren't his. Maybe oh, Maybe he's not the dad of any of the that. kids.
3: That's funny. Yeah. So he has other <laughs> men impregnate yeah. his
1: wife. Maybe that's what it is.
5: Yeah.
3: And she's just like desperate to get another one.
1: Well, she just because
5: they get too big that she can't cuddle. She them can't anymore.
1: cuddle. That must be it. That's why he's like, hey, you know, you're a good looking guy. Like, the swing, the swingers reveal so funny.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. He presents an an opportunity to maybe wife swap with him, and Nicolas Cage punches him in the face.
5: (laughs) I related though to Holly Hunter in this. Like, whenever you decide, like, okay, we're going to start trying to have kids or whatever, it's like suddenly, like, okay, but you have to do this. And you have to, do you have this pediatrician? Do you do like a thousand things? Like, the second you get pregnant, you have to. Get a daycare, and like you hear all of those things. So I was very much, dance. I was very much feeling Holly Hunter in this. In this, yeah. Scene. Did this oh, moment yeah. stress
3: you out? Because it stressed me out. Because it then it got me thinking about that kind of stuff. It's like, what are you gonna like, start a bank do you account? Figure and,
5: out this stuff that you
3: are supposed yeah. to do.
1: I I was laughing for sure. I mean, I I feel very grateful that we, you know, Lisa, my partner, such a amazing. She's got it dialed in you know and i'm and i'm learning from her and we're both reading the books we're doing all the stuff so it didn't give me anxiety it just i definitely was laughing about it the thing that that i think is funny though is when we you know trying to have a kid working on that for many years everybody's got an opinion that has ever had a kid because it worked for them so they're like you know my favorite thing is people would just be like you know you just got to get a bottle of wine and put on some good music I'm
2: like, <laughs> spoken hey, like somebody who probably takes.
1: got pregnant instantaneously. Yeah, like, You know what I mean? But yeah, everybody, everybody's everybody got an opinion. It's like when, you know, Justin's sick right now. Whenever somebody's sick, everyone's like, oh, you have to do, take echinacea and a little bit of your own shit and blend it and sniff it twice a day.
0: It'll take care of your cold in six to yeah. eight weeks. I love, I love like, just like drink soup. Like, oh, I don't know yeah. that. I don't know that one. I needed a reminder. Ne- did you have did exactly. you take vitamin C? I never thought of such a thing. <laughs> Thank you. Drink lots of um, water, stains that don't go in the cold.
1: We did have a funny thing, though, where we ended up getting pregnant um, a week after we got a new dog. So now we have two dogs, one's a puppy who's a oh. maniac and a baby coming. So that's yeah. kind of funny. We're like, yeah, if you if you want to get pregnant, just uh, get another dog. Yeah, is my <laughs> that's, trick. That's, that's what I'm going to tell everybody.
3: So yeah, great supermarket chase.
1: I do love the Huggies chase where it's it, literally everybody pulls out a gun. Everybody. It's just, I was uh. laughing so hard. <laughs>
3: Son, you got a panty on your head. was well, something I used to say all the time as a kid.
1: Yes, me too. It's such a memorable line. I actually forgot that that line was in this movie until yesterday. I heard it and I was like, oh man, I've been saying him. that forever and I forgot what it's from. <laughs> yeah.
3: This is the first but not the last time that Nicolas Cage will rob a place with a panty on his head. Because he does it in Wild at Heart with Willem Dafoe's character.
1: That I feel like Wild at Heart kind of feels like a, a, like a sister to this Movie yeah. like the dark or the uh-huh. dark cousin of Raising Arizona in a way because it's got that chaotic. It'd be energy. a good
5: double feature.
1: Yeah, it's like a much sexier, like sweatier kind of um, version of this film or something like that.
3: And it feels like Cage completely unhinged. You know, like yeah, it doesn't feel like David Lynch was saying no to to Cage on that one. Yeah, seems like he was allowed to take that and go with wherever he wanted to go. That movie, I just love that
1: full. Movie. Yeah, full of great. Wild I think I know that movie maybe because of you guys. I think that maybe you let me borrow that DVD at some point because I had not seen it going into doing the 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 web series.
3: Yeah, I think the, the two movies we told you to watch for that character was Wild or Heart and Leaving Las Vegas.
0: We created a monster.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I remember you showed up to set the first day and you were like I don't really know if I like have his voice down. And we were like, no, don't do a voice. Like just just do you as Nick Cage. And so it's like not a one to one impersonation by any means. It's more of a it's the idea of Nick
5: That's Cage. That's the funniest part of it. And then didn't you do Nick Cage in a funnier die whiskey commercial? Yeah, too? then we did another one. Yeah.
3: We brought it to the funnier
5: die. That's really funny.
1: Yeah. Did a whole they, series. They, of that- this. That was the funniest part of that whole thing is that you didn't you you actually advised me against using an accent of or like a Nicolas Cage impression yeah. of any kind. But I think what made it so fun from my point of view is just uh trying to harness his energy and his mm-hmm. his sort of approach to the way he does what he does, which is to um make these crazy wild choices that are that feel kind of irrational and are just unhinged and fun. And man, that was just the most fun thing ever. The all yeah. those
3: we weren't oh. restrained by any reality. We was just like, let's just make him a character. Like, just make the most fun character we could make. Yeah. But I miss that character. I love it. was funny, oh too, that we
0: integrate, we snuck in the watch from the web series that Nick Cage uses to keep track of <laughs> when he needs to have his next drink. We <laughs> snuck it into this commercial with no context. Nobody has any clue. His watch is beeping.
2: <laughs>
1: I, I'm honestly surprised that I didn't die. Filming those whiskey commercials because there's a there's a moment in one of the I think the first one where he smashes the the um Yeah, cookie booty the cockroach.
3: and eats the cockroach. Yeah
1: in, in my face is so like red and sweaty and like the <laughs> veins of my eyeballs are popping out that I like I can't believe I didn't have an aneurysm and like blow up my head or something like that It's still when I watch it. I laugh. I'm like, God, I don't even remember. This. You
0: know, what would be a fun scientific study that I'm surprised No one has done um Harvard or MIT if you're listening. <laughs> does the stress that an actor induces on themselves when they know that it's a performance, but they are embodying the character and they're embodying the emotions, does that take the same toll on your body as the real stress and the real emotion? I'm sure it does for some Probably. people. Probably. Some some I actors feel like, just I think for themselves method so actors, actors, yeah, for yeah. sure. Your body doesn't know the difference. Still, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, the body keeps score. I've heard that. <laughs> you know, they say. Yeah. And it's a I don't like feel that land. way personally. Um, but I think that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that they just torture themselves and really mm-hmm. like put themselves through it.
3: Nicolas Cage said he had to go to the doctor after this, uh, that Joel had to take him to the doctor because the day after the last shoot day, he couldn't get out of bed.
1: I can definitely see him being somebody that. That puts that level of physical commitment. What's the, in the Nicolas Cage is losing his shit video, there's like some film where he like pours black paint all over himself. Yeah. What is that? that I don't even know what that's from.
3: That is of, uh, it's called, uh, uh, not Mandalay, but like, you, know, you remember that, Justin? Uh, yeah. Vandalay or something like that? Yeah.
0: Vandalay, Vandalay, something like that. Something like Didn't that. Didn't he eat a cockroach too? That was like a. Yeah, he thing eats that a cockroach in, in Vampire's, vampire's Kiss. Vampire's
3: Kiss, yeah. So yeah, then there's. A number of things happen that are fun, fun sequences where they decide to rob a bank, a hayseed bank. They get high to to agree to do it, but then he realizes he shouldn't do it. Uh, the, the husband of Francis McDormand comes and tries to blackmail them for Nathan Jr. because he realizes they stole it. This gets John Goodman and William Forsythe to steal the baby because they want to return it for the reward, and they say it's just business high. Uh, and then, yeah, they fight. They have a showdown with the biker. The biker... um, He's not sure if he's a vision or a dream, but he's actually there, and he's, he's going to find the kid no matter what. He can either pay more than the reward, which is 25000 he wants 50000 or he'll sell it for more on the black market, which is kind of a creepy Ugh, idea. Horrifying. And he implies that he was a baby that was bought on the black market. He was like, I, am I?
4: I myself fetched $50,000 on the black market. That hmm. $1954. <laughs>
3: How's that impression? <laughs> uh,
5: moving on. Anyone can
0: cover their nose, Chad. <laughs>
3: what are y'all's interpretations on the Leonard Smalls biker character? Because at the end of the movie it's revealed that he and High have the same
5: tattoo. tattoo.
3: Which is of um Ro- it's a rooster, right? It's either Woody Woodpecker or it's Mr. Horsepower, which is like a famous auto parts logo. But Mr. Horsepower usually has like a a cigar in his mouth, but it's the same bird.
0: No, there's a company that uses that logo. That's what uh, it is. Mr. Yeah, Horsepower. Muffler, something muffler.
5: It confused me. So I'm like, okay, is he just like a part of him?
0: I don't think it's meant to be anything more than just like prison prison tattoo. Like cause his his friends who escaped from prison have the Woodpecker. And it has, like, the vibe of, like, a gang tattoo or prison tattoo. Uh, ha- so I, ha-
3: how do you... I don't think the movie ever shows that they have the tattoo.
0: I think I, think I saw it at one point.
3: Mm. Mm. I've never seen
0: that. Um, if I recall correctly, and I could be wrong, in the scene where they're first introduced, where they're, like, sitting in that therapy session room, mm-hmm. you don't see it.
3: Multiple of them had it? I'd never, I'd never mm. noticed that either. any mm. of them have it.
0: I could be wrong. If it's true, if they are, they also have the tattoos, which I thought they did, then I think it's meant to be like, oh, they all, you know, were in the can together at some point. Or like, maybe they didn't know each other in the can, but they were part of the same, same gang.
1: I think he's a metaphor. I think I was interested to see, they make him very literal in the movie, but I, I... Uh, I, th- I, I always thought of him like my memory of him was as the metaphor of of I think the I guess if I was writing a, like a college cinema paper about it, his his like the manifestation of his own anxiety and the fears that are um, brought up at this um, with this new life that they have in their life that they have to protect and, and the things that can come for not, not just for him, but can come take this other thing away. And I also think that there's there's a sense of um, that that character being a sort of manifestation of his sort of darker impulses and like the fears of what the evil that he fears that he has inside of himself, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, where he's like trying to do right, trying to do the good thing and trying to be a good person and a strong person. But there's this like looming kind of like impulse, this like kind of carnal uh, impulse that's coming after him. I keep saying carnal because I feel like this this crime thing is almost like this this biological need that he has that feels yeah like he didn't strike. It's not like a very sexual character, but I think that this like
3: crime for him is his release.
1: And yeah. the, well, he
3: even it's hereditary almost because he says, I come from a long line of outlaws and frontiersmen. Right, right. And this is in my nature it's in my DNA. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, that's one hundred percent my interpretation of it too. I think it's like whatever is in the Shining that causes the Jack character to want to kill his family. You know that that same metaphor. That's what the Leonard Small's character is to me. I mean, he he almost says it as such in his dream monologue. He's like, I I don't know if he was a dream or a vision, but I almost feel like I. Brought him into this world. He is the wrath that is gonna come from taking this child. And an interesting thing that I'd never really thought about before, but I looked into the song that when he wakes up from that dream, Holly Hunter is like singing a lullaby to um Nathan Jr.
2: Father sits at his cabin door, wiping his eyes. For I did murder that dear little girl whose name was Rose Conley.
4: Sometimes it's a hard world for little
3: things. So I looked into what that song was and it's like an old folk lullaby called Down in the Willow Garden. And it's about a guy who murders his wife and then gets imprisoned for it. And and the song is about the guilt of it and the regret of doing it. And that's, that melody that like, dun 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 is introduced in that dream sequence with the biker. Lone biker of the apocalypse.
4: A man with all the powers of hell at his command. He could turn the day into night and lay to waste to everything in his path.
3: The melody of that folk song. And then it kind of becomes a part of the score after that. So it seems intentional to me that like they chose that folk song for a reason, and they're highlighting the Leonard Smalls character with that folk song of a a song about a guy who kills his wife and 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 feels bad about it and feels guilt about it. It is i think for me ties into that interpretation of that he is like a manifestation of like all the darkest qualities of me and and the and the this bad things that could happen from me. And so the fight at the end feels like a fight with himself. He's like overcoming his, his, uh, his own demon.
1: This is kind of digging deep, but my kind of another part of my interpretation of it is that he comes from a long line of criminals and outlaws, like he says, right. And, and he now is, it, you know, for the course of the movie is going to have this kid, this boy, this son who, You know, I wonder if any of it is his fears of the the lineage continuing on to the next generation. And if 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 the fight with him is is kind of about him wrestling with his own demons in in order to Mm. kind of break the cycle a little bit,
3: Um, because when they bring him home, he goes he's a little outlaw. You can see it. She goes, no, no, he's a good boy. Yeah. You can see it.
5: Yeah. There's like a pride in it though. Yeah.
3: He, at that point he's prideful of it.
1: Well, I think that's common in families. It's, you know, if masculine hyper masculinity or like Mm -hmm. alpha Mm -hmm. shit and, um, and, and, um, and it, it feels like, um, something that we're kind of up against if we're having a boy, I'm thinking about a lot of this now because I'm about to have a boy. And I think about like, um, is he going to be like the best parts of me or the worst parts of me? You know, like Probably all these the thoughts worst. are going through my head. <laughs>
4: no, no, don't say that. <laughs> Luckily,
1: the worst parts aren't too bad. But um, yeah, it's like it's like responsibility, the overwhelming like fear of responsibility.
0: I think yeah. whether the character is real or whether it's metaphor, which I think it could also be both at the same time. Me too. Mm-hmm. I think it um, is. Either way, he manifested it. Like he did bring it into this world. through He, yeah. he yeah. dreamed mm-hmm. it. And so that's why I think the ending is very similar to me. The way that I look at it is we don't have to look at it as literal or metaphor, but we could look at it as something that he is capable of manifesting. He's capable of manifesting that future or they both are together. It's not just him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, he brought the biker from hell into this world. And through their arc and their growth by the end of the film, I think it leaves the door open that, like, he could they could manifest a better future for themselves, too. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's sort of sweet, too, when he kills him because he accidentally kills him. (laughs) And when he realizes that he's going to kill him, that he's going to blow up, he goes, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think he
0: accidentally kills him. The camera shows a close up of the grenades and it shows his hands going up to it. And he's like trying uh-huh. to grab the ring.
3: But then he rips open his shirt and reveals the tattoo after that. So it's like he he skips the grenades and goes to like his sleeve.
0: But it doesn't, the, the timeline of it is irrelevant. We saw him at one point trying to do it. Yeah. And well, I
3: think it's implied that he, doesn't, <coughs> that he doesn't realize that he pulled the pin because he's putting his hands up to block his face. And then that's when he realizes right. he acts like, I think it is implied it's an accident.
0: I, could, I couldn't I could disagree more. I think the, the movie shows a sequence of shots that insinuate that he is trying to remove the pin from the gr- grenade. Corey, do you know what I mean?
5: I do know what you mean, but now that Jack's saying this, I'm like, I 100% thought that he meant to do it, but now that you're saying this, I'm like, oh, maybe he didn't. He
0: meant to do it, but he didn't think he would be able to do it, and I think his <laughs> accomplishment of that was a surprise to him, and he still... He had to do what he needed to do to save his family, he could still say, I'm sorry. Yeah. I think he Well, he, my point
3: was that if he if he is a manifestation of a part of himself that basically he's saying, I'm shoving you away so that I don't pass you on. Yeah. There's something sort of sweet about him saying I'm sorry before doing that. Yeah. Like I you've been you know, like you're I a agree, part of me and I'm sorry. He's, fight, <laughs>
0: he's fighting him. He's trying to kill him and it shows him yeah. trying to grab the that grenade. So yeah. sorry, you're wrong. I'm right. <laughs> I'm curious. Did they say
1: anything about this in the interviews book?
3: No, they don't talk. They are classically cagey about meaning and themes and all that stuff. They will go so far as to be like, "There is no meaning to it." We, you know, we had other stupid reasons for it. They don't for for this character, but they just don't talk about it. Like, which I think is smart. Yeah, I think that's what they should do. They shouldn't well, say, "Here's the reason."
1: It's a fu- it's such a fun iconic image that allows people to kind of project their own feelings on i think that's the greatest like uh you know symbols and and um metaphors in film do that they kind of allow the viewer to say oh well this is what i got out of it because this is what i'm Mm -hmm. going through in my life and what i feel about it
3: and i like it because it's messy you know like if you're right justin that the other characters have that tattoo i like that because it messes it up Mm -hmm. a little bit you know what i mean like it's not as one-to-one as like well they have the same tattoo so they must be linked you know as much as i that's what i've always felt if it turns out that other people have the tattoo i would actually be okay with that because i'm like i like it to be a little dirty they return the baby the way they came in they they crawl into the window and return nathan jr nathan senior finds them and at first he thinks they are just returning it for the reward yeah but then he realizes through their which
5: they should have taken that money no Oh, it's not the right thing bad, to do. It's not the right <laughs> thing to, to think. Do.
0: Corey, I'm like shocked.
5: <laughs> I mean, Corey always thinks that twenty five thousand dollars. They need that money.
3: Corey's always like, take the reward, take the horse. <laughs> yeah, they sliced up your face, but take the horse. <laughs>
0: hey,
5: they sh- She should have taken the horse. <laughs> I stand by that. Yeah, that,
0: that that's a completely different <laughs> scenario, Jack. <laughs> she well, scenario She was, was they- brutalized. She was the victim. They're the perpetrator. They're the <laughs> They're the aggressor in the scenarios.
3: Yeah, I think this moment is really sweet. Just tell me why you did it.
4: We can't have one of our own. look at it. You can't have kids. You just gotta keep trying and hope medical science catches up with you. Like Florence and me. Caught up with a vengeance. Then hell, even if it never does for you. you still got each other? Sir. Those are kind words, but I think the wife and I are, are splitting up. Her point is that we're both kind of selfish and unrealistic, so we ain't too good for each other. am, yeah, ma'am, I don't know much, but I do know human beings. I brought back my boy, so you must have your good points, too. And he's like, sleep on it.
3: Yeah, I can't imagine if Florence left me. I don't know what I'd do. Word of advice: Sleep on it for one night at least. That's a pretty good impression.
4: (laughs) I applaud all the
1: impressions. I think they're all good. You should have played Nicolas Cage in
0: your web series. (laughs) Stop feeding, feeding into it, Bob.
3: (laughs) Um, And then Nicolas Cage has a dream, and uh, you know the Coen Brothers are known for their kind of darker endings. You know where um, things don't make sense. Or questions are left unanswered. A lot of ambiguous stuff. And I would say this is technically an ambiguous ending. Because we don't know if they're going to stay together. We don't know if they're going to ever have a child together or have a family. But he has this dream that he does. And so we kind of get the, the sentimental emotions of a happy ending. While never fully saying like that's what's going to happen. But I think this is a pretty poetic, beautiful closure to this wackadoo movie yeah you like it some people think it's cheesy
5: no i like it It i like the tone of the movie it's campy
1: and weird and Uh fun it's like the whole movie's weird and fun and and campy and
3: yeah it fits in with the tone
1: What's funny to me is that the dream sequence, the future feels like it's in like further in the past. <laughs> yes. yes. Like they go, it's like <laughs> go in the, the 1950s. future. Exactly. Yeah. Like in the future when we're in the 1950s. It
3: is. It's, it's High's dream, you know? So maybe that's the way they, they talked specifically about when they were creating the character of Leonard Smalls, the biker. They said, we tried to consciously not think of what we thought would be scary. We tried to design them in a way of what High would think was scary. Oh, and they interesting. were like, being where he's from in the time we have assumed he would be afraid of bikers so we created this biker and like Mad Max was kind of a thing at the time too and so they were like it comes from his mind not ours is what we were trying to the
0: do. The Cohen brothers would be pissing their panties if that biker came after them. <laughs>
3: well I, I don't know if they were necessarily saying they wouldn't be afraid of him but they were like he's not their vision of like the ultimate
5: nightmare mm-hmm.
1: What is your vision of your ultimate nightmare? I'm just curious
3: Whew, That's a
5: good question
0: it's hard to be scared of monsters when we live in a world with real life dystopian fucking it's true people who do horrible uh-huh. shit yeah. to each other. Yeah. I, I, I mean, agree. It, it,
3: along those lines, I would be, I would be afraid of like, a diehard American, you know? Like, if he was a depiction of, like, American flag, a patriot. Blue Lives Matter, where, you know, with a Punisher logo on his
5: shirt, like, that's kind of scary to me. This is such a, f- a funny conversation because if this was a conversation between... <laughs> women it would be like a man yeah <laughs> uh, just well, a man yeah. well, it's well, it's worst, for worst sure a man too. it's scared. for sure a man that's a,
3: that's just, uh, man. i'm kind of scared of teenagers to be honest like every now and then oh we'll my. walk past a group of teenagers <laughs> and i am like my hackles go up a little bit because i'm like are they gonna say something to me are they gonna be like nice sneakers dork do
0: you get like triggered you go back to high like triggered to high school or I, but
3: the thing was is i was never bullied in high school so it's not like based off of a, i guess i'm just worried that one day it'll happen like i do up
0: for it <laughs> oh interesting. you weren't wow. bullied like bullying doesn't have to be somebody beating you up and putting your head in a toilet
3: i really wasn't oh. the, the the worst well, thing well good that happened- for you jack <laughs> very
0: happy for you
3: <laughs> the worst thing that happened to me was uh, got, a kid turned around one time and said that my lips looked like clown lips because I'd been playing the trombone. It's <laughs> hilarious. Um, okay.
1: and I was yeah, like, I a little self-conscious about it. I didn't mean that. I was just, you know. <laughs> yeah, for me it's the predator still. No way. Yeah. Yeah, just the predator. No, I'm just I'm kidding. When I was a kid though, predator 100%. I still so scared. dream about the
0: I dream yeah. about the 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 um Movie monsters I dream about the most are Predator and Alien from the <laughs> Ridley. In a
5: scary way, or yeah, it's just mostly like the-,
0: the alien uh, the, the yeah. alien from the Ridley Scott film. Interesting. Um, and those scare me in my dreams. I'm not like walking around in my day like worried <laughs> what is gonna like jump yeah. out of some like black uh pipes and wires and s- smoke. But... <laughs> Uh, In my dreams, it's like I'm trapped somewhere and it's chasing me around.
5: Interesting. I
3: wish. I mean, I don't have fantastical dreams like that. I never have monsters or aliens or weird shit. It's always like the scariest thing that happens in a dream is like a burglar is sneaking into the window.
5: I feel like the scariest thing for you is like you're like editing. I I have plenty of
3: editing dreams. (laughs) I have a lot of dreams where I'm like looking for my belt. But like I don't (laughs) have
0: (laughs) wacky dreams. (sighs) That's wacky, man. That's wacky.
5: <laughs> the wackiest thing I of all.
0: How long do you think you spend looking for your belt?
5: <laughs> the whole dream. And do you only I'll have never one, find it.
0: You only have one belt.
3: And the pants are falling down, baby. <laughs> no, I can't no. keep them on.
0: <laughs> I have a recurring dream where
1: my life, like my whole life, falls apart and I have to uh, search for another apartment.
2: Mm. And I'm I mean, like, that's stressful. Uh.
1: Oh God! I actually had this dream recently, and I moved in with you guys. <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I was like, how long we'll can em. I stay?"
0: Yeah. <laughs> I often will have a dream where my dad is coming to kill me. Interesting. Oh, interesting. Let's. Wow. That's a like. Oedipal?
3: Is that Edipal?
0: No, no. Edipal is right. like so killing your dad to fuck your, to mom, fuck your like? mom. Yeah, but is that where it's coming from? <laughs> he wants to kill me so he could fuck my mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Raising Arizona everyone. <laughs> I will I will say that when he when they return the babies that kind of reads to me like the latest save the cat moment in a film I've ever seen cuz I don't mm. really think of any moment in the film where he actually like does something really good, really positive. Yeah. Um he's just yeah. a likable he's a likable bad guy. Yeah. But in that moment the very end of the film, that's his like save the cat moment.
3: Well, I can assure you the Coen brothers weren't reading Blake Snyder. No, I know. But I just mean like
0: (laughs) something that makes you. uh,
3: Yeah. A redeemable thing. Redeems the character. Well, part of it is you don't actually, I think because you're the voiceover. Voiceover can be a very powerful tool in getting you to empathize and connect with characters. So you don't necessarily need a big scene to be like, oh, they're a good guy. Although I will say there are little hints, like it's repeated a couple times in the movie that High, when he does these stickups and these burglaries, he's always always using an unloaded gun. That's why they mm. can't keep him because it's never yeah. it's not a true felony. And that I think is telling of his character that he's not a uh, person. He doesn't violent. want to hurt anybody. He's not really, exactly. Yeah. And he says but that too. He's a fuck
0: too. up. You know, he's a fuck up. Yeah, it, it, uh, that's what he is. There's uh, two moments in the movie. Uh, I mean, there's so many moments in the movie that are amazing, but too, I wanted to bring up that scene where he's writing a letter and he's he's going to leave and it Mm -hmm. cuts to different people like sleeping and then it just arbitrarily cuts to the clerk at the... (laughs) <laughs> at the 7-Eleven and he's sleeping and I thought it was like oh this is so sweet and then it shows the jugs magazine that's, the jugs? On his <laughs> that's such a low brow joke but it works so, so well funny it was so funny mm-hmm. and then there's another moment where he's robbing him and he and it's the line from the trailer that we heard at the top of the pod and he goes I'm gonna take the huggies and uh and all the cash you got And I noticed that I laughed out loud when I saw that scene and it wasn't funny at all when I heard it. And that just made me think of how much Cage makes something funny Mm -hmm. through his body and his pauses and his performance where it's like it doesn't sound funny when you hear it. But when you see him doing it, there's so much more there that makes that. Hilarious! He
3: like wiggles his head like, and shrugs yeah. whatever cash you got.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's really funny. <laughs> okay.
3: well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll Have final thoughts on Raising Arizona.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50
3: Welcome back to Cinema Possessed and we are talking final thoughts on Raising Arizona. Mm-hmm. Corey, what are your final thoughts on Raising Arizona?
5: I mean, not a lot more than everything that we've just discussed. I love this movie. I think to bring back to Justin's point at I- the beginning of like when people ask you of a good comedy, I think this is like a fun choice to say because I think comedies are really hard to like recommend in a way that's like, oh, I, this is also a good movie. Like, the, you know, there's movies that you can recommend that I'm like, well, I think this is funny or whatever. But I'm like, I think this is a classic, really good movie as well as a really good comedy. The performances are incredible. I think Holly Hunter is. I mean, obviously this is like a Nicolas Cage classic role, but I feel like the same for Holly Hunter. I think she's so, so good in this movie. And the way that she goes from, like she's essentially the straight man of this movie, but she has so much like heightened comedy bits and like her going from full on crying to being like harsh so quickly is just so impressive and fun. And I love this movie. I think John Goodman, I think it's one of my favorite roles of his. It's fun to see him in such a physical role, too. And, like, I don't know. I love this movie. It's interesting
3: that you say that Holly Hunter is a straight man because it's her idea. Like, she is the one spearheading. That's
5: true. I guess she's just not, like, as wacky. But I understand.
3: Yeah, like, she she gives that vibe.
5: This would be such an easy given to the wrong actress, like, such an... Or the wrong writers. Like, a harsh stereotypical annoying woman like uh, yeah. role but she brings so much layer, so many layers to it that like you love her and are rooting for her just as much.
3: She has a few moments where she gets really big like that that line in the car where she goes we got a baby now everything's changed <laughs> yeah. I love all those moments from her Yeah, and I'm glad they keep them in there because uh-huh. I could see them being like should we cut that on yeah. her you know what I mean but it's like I love that they're in there.
0: Justin how about you? It's amazing it's a tonal masterpiece the way that the film handles the comedy is skillful and unlike anything that we ever see coming out today it almost has like a you know an international sensibility to it it doesn't feel like i don't know other american films at the time even though there's a lot of americana at the heart of it i like the worlds that these that these two wonderful people build and create, it almost feels like all their movies are interconnected in some way. And I guess the only other thing I was reflecting on is like where this would sit in my list of Coen Brothers movies. And I don't know if I would place it at number one, but I also don't know what would sit at number one either, but I know it would be a contender for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's an underappreciated film that I myself overlook a lot. And this reminded me that it is brilliant and I love it and I don't actually own it. So I think this is one that I would add to my collection.
1: Bob, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this conversation has got me really excited about this movie. I can't wait to finally see it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I I love this movie. I think it's great. I'm, I'm, I was super excited that you guys asked me to join you for this one because it, it gave me an excuse to watch it again. And I was not anticipating how uh, my relationship with it was going to be so different because of life stuff. Um, I kind of had a memory of what this movie was, and it kind of became a whole different movie for me yesterday, which was really fun and exciting. Um mm-hmm. I'm always going to come back to this one. Probably going to watch it with a kid at some point. You know, it's just such yeah, a fun, sure. zany, wacky movie. And um, it's in
3: the lineage of parents introducing this movie to kids.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think this is a pretty safe one too, you know, to, Big time. it's not, yeah, it doesn't have any of the easy stuff that people go for, for entertainment. It's like, it's fun and weird. And it's like a cartoon movie mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. So I really love this movie so much. It made me want to go back and rewatch Hudsucker Proxy because I feel like that's another one that kind of fits into the weird kind of cartoony. Totally.
3: Was
0: Sam Raimi involved, in involved in that one also?
3: He's in it. He makes a little cameo. And they were actually they had written Hudsucker and they were wanting to make Hudsucker as their second film, but it was too expensive. They were they they knew they would never get the budget for it, so they
0: wrote this. It says he's a writer on it too. Oh really? Yeah. He
3: co-wrote? That's cool. Yeah. And before, even before this, they co-wrote The XYZ Murders or or Crime Wave Mm -hmm. um, that Sam Raimi directed right before this. I agree completely, Bob. Uh, This is the most emotional viewing I've ever had of it. For whatever reason, it is connecting with me at this stage of my life more than it ever has. This has always been one of my favorite movies. I think it is my favorite Coen Brothers movie. When the credits hit at the 11 minute mark, I thought to myself, is this my favorite movie of all time? So it's up there. You know, It's in the conversation. I can't wait to watch it again. I think I'll watch it many more times in my life. And uh, there's no way I'm going to give up this DVD.
0: I love it. I love that we can watch movies. And you need to remind yourself that just because you liked or didn't like a movie 5, 10, 15 years ago, you're going to have a totally different experience based on what's happened in your life. Mm -hmm. And based on what you both have said, I think it's really exciting. It's an exciting reason or motivation for somebody who's seen a movie once or twice and liked it to like check in with it again. You know, if it's been 10 years, you can connect with it in a totally different way. Yeah um, and I think that's something really exciting about film.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's like a good book too. It's the 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 story is still there, but yeah, the point of view of the of the viewer changes and it bring, brings out the a whole characters
5: different characters you relate to always change too, I feel like, which is fun.
1: Yeah, I, I had a teacher in high school that w- when we read Catch and the Rye was like, "Make sure you read this book like at least 5 times in your life." And and mm. your relationship with it will completely change. And I I rem- like I did go back and read it I like one other time as an adult, and I was like, oh man, this is a totally different book. I used to think he yeah. was so cool. And now I'm like, this kid is such <laughs> <Yeah>. an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I fucking hate this. I know. Guy.
5: I've talked about that before on the pod. How like that used to be my favorite book in high school, and I just thought I was like so cool and artsy yeah. for being. I read it f- dozens of times, and like I probably like. I don't know, six or seven years ago, tried to go back and read it again. And like, I kind of just couldn't even. I was like, (laughs) oh, God. I I
0: never understood how anyone could take a book that was assigned as homework in in (laughs) school and say that that's their favorite book. Like just the very, even if it was a brilliant book, the... the reason alone that it was a sign sure sure yeah automatically I, I was like this is disgusting get it away from me <laughs> <laughs> it's very Holden Caulfield of you Justin yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm still <laughs> like that I haven't changed um, you're
3: more of a flowers in the attic kind of guy <laughs> <laughs> well now that we've said everything there is to say about raising Arizona what do you say we play the
2: Nicholas Cage Quiz
3: that's right, folks. The Nicholas Cage quiz, multiple choice. Let's see how much you three know about Nicholas Coppola Cage.
0: Bob was so excited to leave; he thought the pod was. I dying. know he was like, like "Lisa, wait, I'll be what? He's texting Lisa. I'll be down in like <laughs> one minute top space." <laughs> Don't worry, this will
2: you only just take b- another. You just got to blow these two out of the water. Question oh, number
3: one. Bring it. Which of these two films earned Nicolas Cage Oscar nominations? Is it A, Adaptation, B, Peggy Sue Got Married, C, Leaving Las
5: Vegas, or D, Moonstruck? Corey, Adaptation and Leaving Las Vegas? (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. Quick on the
1: draw, Corey. We like ding. We got to
3: come in. I I thought, okay.
5: Yeah, you got to be quick with your name and the answer. You You can shout the
3: answer if you'd like. You can say your name or you say
5: When you play this, we and Jessica. there are very specific no, 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 roles. No. Say your
0: name and then say the answer. Yeah. We need to know who's speaking. I can't tell Bob <laughs> apart from Corey. <laughs> you do look uh, strikingly similar. It's true.
3: Fun fact, Nicolas Cage was never paid for leaving Las Vegas. The, uh, the director, Mike Figgis, revealed on a podcast not too long ago that neither he nor Nicolas Cage were paid one cent for that movie. That's insane. Because the production company was shady. Wow. Wow. They claimed it never made a profit. Was that the
0: same site where you found the information about tasers? (laughs) Yeah, it was on that
3: documentary about the kids. (laughs) Question number two. Nicholas Coppola changed his last name to Cage to distance himself from his famous uncle. The name Cage is based off a comic book hero, Luke Cage, who also goes by what moniker? A. Black Lightning B. Power Man C. Brother Voodoo Or D, Spawn?
5: Corey, A, Black Lightning. Oh, Oh, I was going to say the same. It's not not Spawn.
0: What was B and C again?
3: B is Power Man and C is Brother Voodoo.
0: I'm going to go with C, Brother Voodoo. Power Man, really?
3: It was Power Man. That's lame. Mm. (laughs) Y'all need to brush up on your Marvel comics.
5: No, thanks. I didn't
3: know that. Question number three. Nicholas Cage once woke up in the middle of the night in his Orange County residence to find a naked man standing over his bed wearing his leather jacket and doing what? A, jerking off. B, licking his feet. C, eating a fudge sickle. Or D, holding a hammer.
0: Justin
1: Box. B, licking his feet. <laughs> I say Bob C. Fudgesicle. Yeah. Wow. He was eating a fudgesicle.
0: Oh my God, that's horrible! Knowing
1: Nicholas Cage the way that I do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. You would get that one. You would get I that could one. See somebody, I could see somebody eating a fudgesicle over my sleeping body.
3: Uh, he was arrested, but Cage did not press charges. Of course wow. not. Wow. However, he was unable to continue sleeping in that house until so he moved right. <laughs> wow, <out. Yeah.
5: laughs> understandably so.
3: <laughs> Question number four. So Bob has a point. Corey has a point. Justin, you need to catch up, bud. I Which could, of these roles... Just
0: strangle you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Question number four. Which of these roles was Nicolas Cage originally cast, but he dropped out because he didn't feel he had the time to bulk up? Bob. Was it... <laughs>
2: Superman.
3: <No>. <laughs> 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 oh, dear. <laughs> Try to get it ahead it of Corey. A- <laughs> <laughs> Was it A, Maximus Meridius in Gladiator? B, Randy the Ram in The Wrestler? C, Bruce Wayne in Batman Begins? Or D, Max Katie in Cape Fear?
5: Corey, Batman?
1: I feel like B, Wrestler, but I could see. Ding, ding, ding! Really? And I was like, did he write that movie for Mickey
5: Rourke? That's what I was thinking, too. I figured he wrote it for Mickey Rourke.
3: Apparently, he was originally cast. Nick Cage did say he could tell that Darren Aronofsky preferred Mickey Rourke. Hmm. I think it was a situation in which Mickey Rourke was maybe not available or something, and so Nick was cast, but then he dropped out because he was like, I can't get big enough in
0: time. Darren Aronofsky (laughs) wears his his heart on his scarf. You That's can, true You can read what he's thinking through that scarf
5: <laughs> He probably just was like mumbling
3: I
2: wish it was Mick yeah.
1: He's like could you try that more like Mickey Rourke would have done it
3: <laughs> <laughs> Question number five Nicolas Cage bought What two headed animal But gave it up after it kept fighting itself Is it A A two headed cobra B a two headed tiger C, a two-headed alligator, or D, a two-headed wolverine.
5: That would be a cobra.
1: I would say A,
3: cobra, yeah. Ding ding ding. Corey
1: gets I it. I don't it's think Corey. any of
5: those other things exist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know itself. a
1: two-headed cobra exists. That I didn't sounds either. terrifying. Yeah.
3: I think he donated it to a to a zoo after that.
1: I'm changing right. nightmare fear from predator to two-headed <laughs> cobra.
3: Question number 6. Nicholas Cage once spent $276,000 on an item that he was forced to return once it was revealed that it was stolen. Was it A, the Holy Grail? B, a Tyrannosaurus Rex skull? C, a black opal? Or D, an Egyptian mummy?
0: Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> I'd say D, mummy.
5: That's
3: what I was going to (laughs) say. Justin, do you have an actual guess? I
0: don't remember anything Holy Grail, Opal.
5: (laughs) Holy Grail,
3: T-Rex skull, Black
0: Opal. I'm going to say T-Rex skull.
3: Ding, ding, ding. Justin's got points (laughs) on the
2: floor.
0: Yeah, he bought it from an auction in Manhattan.
3: And then it was revealed that it was stolen from the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. So he had to give it back.
0: (laughs) Did he get his money back? I assume so
3: although I don't know maybe he didn't maybe he didn't okay final question of the Nicolas Cage quiz and this one is worth
5: all the points
3: 10 (laughs) points so whoever gets it brings home the gold on the set of Bringing Out the Dead Nicolas Cage was continuously stalked by who? was it A Lisa Marie Presley B, a mime (laughs) C, a crow or D, Eric Roberts oh god (laughs) please
1: be D
5: (laughs) and it's not Eric Roberts was it a mime? ding 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 really wins (laughs) Bob (laughs) I was a mime in high school
1: I too, yeah. I too have studied the mime. We we should be, well, mi- we should yeah, be miming together. We should,
5: we should be. I have photographic be.
3: evidence. We got a.
5: I do
1: too.
3: Corey was in the paper. We got got really gotta, the newspaper clipping of her is a mime. Corey, we yeah. should start a troupe.
5: Let's do it. And this is how we're going to get our big break, Bob. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: this
5: is miming. I think
3: the world. I think Hollywood is ready for a big mime.
5: Hey, man. I love miming and clowning. I think it's cool.
1: Yeah, now they've done they've done zombies, vampires, uh, werewolves. Didn't really catch. I think mimes could have a real. Can resurgence you guys write
5: um, Bob and I a movie called Attack of the Mimes, and it's me and him on the cover? Like I would this. rather die.
3: Or maybe it's about. Maybe it's about two mimes who crash land on a planet together. And it's called Enemy Mime.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's pretty. That's a great. So many great references there. Have you done Enemy Mine yet? No, on this but I podcast? would love to.
3: Speaking of Dennis Quaid, oh, I cannot wait. No,
1: I loved. I loved that movie as a kid. No. Me too.
3: Me too. Well, Bob, it was so great having you on the podcast today. This was the funnest conversation. Anything you want to plug? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, God. Such a gross uh,
0: question. I, no, everybody gotta, in Hollywood, I'm just bad at Hollywood. Everybody's
1: like, well, I got my one-man show I'm doing. I'm writing a couple of other things, and... uh Man, I I just want to plug the Actors Gang Theater. That's that's there all go, I got yeah. right now. That's my theater company. We're doing our year-end appeal right now. If you want to help us uh keep on rocking with a tax-deductible donation, that would be super mm. helps. But as far as other work goes, man, I'm just starting to, you know, audition theoretically yeah. again. I mean, mm. I don't even know if things are happening. I guess they're happening. Uh it's just a weird time, you know? Yes.
3: About to have a kid. We're excited for you on that one, bud.
1: Yeah, but next time I'm on your podcast, I promise I'll have 14 scripts I'm working on uh, and a bunch of <laughs> like a, a massive TikTok following and all kinds of that mm-hmm. other stuff. But right now I'm just trying to like uh, um, get 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 my home in order for for child arrivals. Do you even have a TikTok? I, I, th- I mean, I have one. I've ne- I never go on it. I never mm. go on it
5: don't because i'm over i
1: feel like chris farley i'm like because i am not young i don't understand social media i
3: picked the wrong career i uh, oh this is awesome though oh thanks bob well that my friends is the show Follow us on social media at Cinema Possessed Pod, where we announce next week's movie ahead of time. And if you want to get in touch with us, email us at cinemapossessedpod at gmail.com. And if you want to get even more possessed, head on over to patreon.com cinemapossessedpod and unlock the Cinema Possessed bonus materials. Those are our bi-monthly bonus episodes where we talk about more than just what's in our collection. Join the Patreon, folks. There's a whole lot of content just waiting for you there. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And Justin, let the people
0: know what movie we'll be talking about next week. Next week, we're watching 2002's Punch Drunk Love. Wait, He needs
3: me, he needs me, he needs me. Now, I could be talking about Popeye. Did you know that's from Popeye?
2: Mm-hmm. I'll save it for next episode. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> and as always... Keep watching the movies you love and stay possessed. Later! Bye.
5: Hasta la vista.
3: See ya.